Horror Movie Podcast. Just calling to tell you happy Friday the 13th. This is Eric from Long Island. That is all. serious about horror movies uh, recording there was from peter thank you peter you're the best we usually produce a bi-weekly show that's released every other friday but from friday the 13th of february until the present date we have covered the entire friday the 13th franchise and we're ending here on our sixth part of the series which is our franchise overview this is like a giant cast party for the friday the 13th movies with no cast members in attendance. <laughs> um, <laughs> so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to do all sorts of celebrating. And the easiest way to kind of sum it up is we're going to take the listener feedback, the awesome stuff that you guys sent in, like as far as feedback and voicemails and votes and contests and all that stuff. It's just easier just to go forward with it than to try to describe it all to you. So we're going to have a good time. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode if you love the Friday the 13th franchise. So this is episode 47, and we're glad you're here. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, and I'm podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts with me tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shaq Becker from the Philadelphia suburbs. Wolfman Josh, you doing okay, Jay? (laughs) Man, brother, I'm going (laughs) to sleep for like a week after this episode gets out. (laughs) I'm serious, but yeah, I'm good. And thanks for being here, you guys. I'm so glad you're here. So because I am kind of a zombie, I'm a little bit like a comatose. These guys, you would Is it okay if we call you zombie Jason for the duration of this episode? (laughs) You you really can. I mean, listeners, beforehand, we were trying to like discuss this episode and how it was going to run. And these guys had to explain to me very basic concepts. So I'm going to actually hand the reins over to Josh to lead us through a lot of this episode just because... He's got a really good handle on the organization of it. So, uh, Wolfman Josh, what are we going to talk about first? Well, I hate to tell you this, Jay, but the first topic is the one that you thought of that I really don't have that much to say about, (laughs) which is our first discussion point. We wanted to discuss 80s slashers in general and how Friday the 13th kind of fit into the 80s slasher. Yeah. So what what thoughts did you have for us that you were interested in sharing there? Okay, thanks. You know, I'm glad that you did ask me about this because that was something I've been interested in. But as we have covered this entire franchise, I've been trying to think, okay, how can we discuss the importance of this franchise, this series, and, and its effect on the 80s, well, on the slasher genre in general, but especially the 80s, 
But without um, stealing the thunder from our eventual slasher episode. Right. And and that's something I'm a little bit hesitant about. So I guess I really want to narrow this. I was going to be a lot more broad, but I just want to kind of narrow the conversation to how do you feel that this particular franchise shaped the direction that slashers went in the 80s? Or do you think that it directed it at all? I mean, the things that I mentioned in the first two episodes that I think are extremely significant were um, the creation of the subgenre due to having, you know, two witnesses, so to speak, between Halloween and Friday the 13th. Suddenly you've got a pattern evolving or emerging, rather. And so, uh, you know, all of these tropes um, that were maybe present in Halloween, some of them intentional, become solidified with Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, obviously some of the big ones are if you have sex, you die, don't do drugs or you die, things like this. Um, they, again, probably weren't intentional for Halloween, but become intentional in Friday the 13th. You know, the writer Victor Miller talked about the kids being kind of removed from adult supervision for the most part, and parents, you know, adults can't really help. Um, that seems to be a major tenant, you know, definitely the sex, the sex and the nudity and, and all of those things we've discussed, um, enter into the picture. And then for me, the big other big thing that happens is in Friday the 13th part two, where the choice is made that, um, rather than sticking with our girl who survived part one, this is going to be about the killer. And I think that's another major moment in the evolution of the slasher genre. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very well said. I don't know how you pulled that all together in just like, just like a an instant. It well, I, was, I said it all before on the other episodes. So. <laughs> I know, I know but that was a tremendous summary. I'm really impressed with that. What do and, you and, and say, Doctor Chuck? I, I was going to say, whereas Halloween, you know, you have to look at that as as the birth of of the slasher. I really think so, just because of the popularity. More than anything. I mean, yes, Black Christmas came before it and even before that, you know, something like Peeping Tom or Psycho uh, and Psycho was popular. But I mean, when you look at what is it that prompted Friday the 13th to say, hey, let's give this a try. It was Halloween because of the popularity. But then on the other side of that, it was Friday the 13th that started the franchise, I think, you know, because originally there wasn't going to be a Halloween too. But the popularity of Friday the 13th and yet Friday the 13th Part 2 and Part 3, that's when Halloween said, okay, well, now, you know, let's let's do a sequel here because there's money to be made. Right. Yeah. And I think so. So whereas Halloween might have kicked off the subgenre, it was Friday the 13th that said, hey, we can turn this thing into a franchise. We could turn it into a series. And I'd also add on to that, um, you know, although there were gory films that came before this, the fact that a studio picked up Friday the 13th and Tom Savini's gore effects were really on the forefront of that film. I think what you do here is you create, um, you know, a a genre that had been banned in other places Mm -hmm. um, that had been looked down upon as suddenly being mass marketed by a major corporation. And I think that's a huge shift in films as well. Yep. And if this is the first, um, I, I didn't look this up. I'm assuming this is the first slasher Tom Savini worked on. Well, yeah, it has to be. He didn't do Halloween. So this is the first slasher. And if you look at just his contribution to that genre in, in, to, in the 80s, to the slashers, with the movies that he contributed, they're among my favorites. 
you know, the the Prowler, the Burning, yeah. Part Four, Friday the Thirteenth, Part Four. It's another one. I know there's one. I'm, I just had it on the top of my head, and I'm forgetting about it. Oh, Maniac. Maniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you look at what he contributed to the slashers and the fact that what you think of when you think of the burning, when you think of the prowler, yes, you have the killer, but then you have the kills. Yeah. And those are some, I mean, it's like he was constantly outdoing himself. Yeah, absolutely. But by the way, just a little side note on there, I I do not think, I mean, even though his work in Day of the Dead is just um, fantastic. I don't think he ever outdid himself in The Prowler. That is I agree. Phenomenal. If I had to pick one movie, if I had to pick one movie, because there are things he does in that where you're like, you're like, they killed that person. They had to have killed that person. For, for, from the way the effects look, the first time you see him, it's like, okay, that guy has that pitchfork rammed into his gut. There's yeah. just no way they could have done it otherwise. Yeah, he, he is actually dead for this movie. He took one right. for the team. Yeah, I absolutely... I actually... Well, I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, did they, was that an accident? And they just kept it in the film. And, and like, I mean, did they blow that stunt? Cause yeah, it looks convincing, mm-hmm. but no, for me, you guys, I guess the place I wanted to go with this in this particular discussion is that it seems to me that because of, I, I won't just give it to Jason, of course, Michael Myers and Jason, and then later Freddy Krueger as well. It seems like the 80s slashers is when we started having like the slasher killer as hero. I mean, I think that in the the prototypical slashers, you know, the proto slashers in the earlier days, which we've talked about before, I think that we started getting uh, attuned to that idea that, hey, the killer is pretty fascinating, actually, and that's the person I'm kind of interested in. But then you have them become this huge like person on the poster like the slasher killer is not not yeah. the bad guy or the villain even though they are but they're actually the, right. the attraction in right. this decade yeah mm-hmm. definitely and and i think by the time you got to freddy you almost had that in the first movie you know like right out of the right out of the box yeah uh it wasn't that case i mean it was it was sort of it was sort of the case with with halloween to a degree although a lot of that i still think you're like really you know that he he was the, the that's the generation of the fear, and you know you really you really want to see Jamie Lee Curtis pull through and and so forth. But by the time it got to Nightmare on Elm Street, you're like, hey, bring Freddy on. You know, even in the first movie, mm-hmm. because people were sort of geared to look for that at that point, to look for the killer. And the way Robert Ingham played him, he was very charismatic. So <laughs> you can certainly understand it. Yes. Well, when you talk about charisma, we you know we mentioned also in our initial review that obviously there were Dracula and Frankenstein and these other monsters that had kind of been the heads of franchises previous to this, but um, but they were all very charismatic. You know, Dracula is so charismatic. Frankenstein, you really care about him. Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, you and and the Invisible Man, you you were invested in these guys as characters. Right, and, and the Mummy was was doing it for love. Yeah, and, and you know, and so was was uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon and King Kong, right. and right, and and so like this is the <laughs> nice. first time where you have these characters where your your monster lead characters who are really monstrous and horrific, right? I mean, they, it, Jason and Michael Myers; these are not people that 
are warm and cuddly like a Frankenstein might be. They're not doing right. it for love necessarily. I guess you could argue that with both of them, but not in the certainly not in the way that the mummy was. Yeah. Now, what, what I heard something today on another podcast where the host, it was just for thrown out there, it's the Scream Queens podcast, where the host made a good point because he uh, was reviewing a Friday the 13th movie as well, and he was doing Jason Goes to Hell. Because uh, what he does is on every Friday the 13th, he reviews a Friday the 13th movie, and that was the one he happened to be on for this particular uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, but he made a point that what happened in Part 9 of Friday the 13th is what happened in Part 2 of Halloween, is that you make the killer a little less effective when you throw family into it, when you give him a reason for doing the killing. Mm. Because in all of the Halloweens, you know, Michael's out to get his family and he ultimately fails. You right. know, he pretty much takes everybody out but the family. Jason, you never had that. First eight movies, he's straight on killer. He's just, you get in his way, you're done. And then in part nine, they threw the family in and they turned him into a slightly less effective killer. Because now he's not killing, he's not getting the people he's going after. He's getting everybody else, but he's not getting the people he's targeting. Sure. And wow. actually, you know, part five, is family motivated and everybody. Yes, hates. it is. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and wow. And maybe you and whoever that host was, that said it on that podcast. Who was that? Dr. Shaw? Patrick. His name is, uh, his name is Patrick Walsh, I believe. Okay. Props to Patrick and you, Dr. Shaw. Cause maybe, maybe that's part of this whole mystique to the, the giant killer of the eighties, which is up to this point in the cinema, there's like good and evil. And a lot of times evil has some sort of motivation. But then you get to these monsters and we've had small motivations given along the way. But for the most part, they're just machines bent on killing, period. It's like Freddy Krueger. It's like, okay, I understand that you're mad because the parents burned you and killed you because you were a pedophile. And so now you want to get revenge on everybody. But it doesn't make sense. It's disproportionate. What is that? It's a disproportionate response. <laughs> like yes, like yes. The, the killing, the things that these monsters do is just way above and beyond like what you would expect from a normal villain. Yeah, they might have gotten their revenge at least by the second movie, but they just keep on going. Yeah. It's not Peeping Tom or Psycho where you understand the pain of these guys to some degree. Thank you. Yeah. Right. You said that way better than that. And, did. you know, Kevin Williamson figured that out when he made scream again, you know, there's the line. It's a lot scarier if there's no motive, you know, motives are incidental is what he says. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think and, that's and well definitely. Said. And I think that's, well, no, I wouldn't say them. I guess there were some motives or they tried to set up motives early on but then by the time you got to later in the friday the 13th series it's just we certainly couldn't Jason figure out now. the motive for part eight i know we tried or we tried <laughs> right, we couldn't figure right, it out. right right <laughs> yeah couldn't figure that out at all why why you know i thought i was thinking how cool would it, would it have been and you know what i think part of it is and you, you read a lot about it they did plan to have scenes at the brooklyn bridge um, you know, on uh, the Empire State Building, they they really did plan to do a lot more in that movie, and they just their budget was cut because the movies were they were making bringing in less and less at the box office, so they were cutting the budget, and it's a shame because I think the the director really did have intentions of of making that and just of doing more, but I was yeah. thinking how cool would it have been if he's chasing these two on the subway, he pushes that one person out of the way. 
And then he just stops and looks around and notices other people, almost like like he didn't see them before. How cool of a scene yeah. would that have been if all yeah. of a sudden now he notices there's other people? And I'm not saying have him slaughter everybody, have him run for the exits, have him take off and just all this mass panic or something, you know? Yeah. I like it. I do too. Another thing that I think that we had to happen in the 80s with these monster killers, these giant killers that we got – is that we went from being scared, which I think we still were scared, but you leave a slasher film and there's more of this feeling of exhilaration. There's this weird twist on the way that the audience feels because we start rooting for the killer to wipe out these annoying characters. And then when that's accomplished, we're kind of pumped about it. And I think that's another really odd uh, characteristic of the 80s slasher cinema. It really is. I mean, if you think about it, maybe that's that's definitely one of the things that I think the critics never got was, you know, most times like in a horror movie, like The Exorcist, nobody's leaving that theater high five in each other. You know, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're walking out of there pretty much horrified. Right. And, and even something maybe like the first Halloween might have had that effect on, on audiences the first time around. Um, but by the time it got to the series, the Friday the 13th, yeah, people are cheering. They're in there cheering for, for Jason, you know, like, like, get him, go get him. And I think that's probably what horrified the critics that they never, you know, some of them, I, I'm not going to put lump them all together, but uh, a good number of them never got that saying, how could you possibly want to see these teenagers, these kids get knocked off in the prime of their life, you know, but that's what it was. It was more of a. It was more of a carnival atmosphere. If, if you think about it, it was it was a good it was it was a good time, and, and you know as as good a time as you can have watching somebody slaughter people. Now I will say I kind of I guess don't get it myself because if I think about the movies that I really love, I, I like both. Like I, I think about Part Six, which is one of my favorite movies. But I'm never scared in Part Six. I'm having a blast in Part Six. Right. I think right. about Part Four. And I do care about those characters a lot more, or even the remake where I care about the characters a lot more. And suddenly Jason's a lot scarier to me in those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think character development is a maybe um, underappreciated thing in the slasher. <laughs> and I think when, <laughs> I, you, when it does happen, it actually is super effective if what you're looking for is scares. Mm-hmm. Definitely right. not for just cheers. But but, but right. yeah, we can all admit, I think, that it is more secondary to the slasher film than it is a primary objective. Yeah, but I guess I see that as one of the faults because I think the movies that I like the most, the movies that scare me the most are the ones where I am invested in the characters, I'll say. But if we want to praise this big giant movie monster, let's let's talk about these guys for just a minute. Who are your favorite Jason Voorhees actors within the Friday the 13th franchise. Dr. Shock. Tell us. It's, it's funny because, and this is going to seem a little strange to everyone. And, uh, you know, with, with all of the different, the different actors who donned, you know, the hockey mask, the one who I always go back to is the one who wore a bag, you know, War- Warrington Gillette, uh, from, from part two. Mm. Mm. Uh, there was just something about that Jason with with the bag, the first one um, that 
really worked for me. And I just think that that scene at the end in that little makeshift was a cabin or whatever it was, where he's got that shrine, you know, that that shrine built with his mother's head and and, and everything, and, and just the way that that actor was and how menacing. That's who I always think of. And yes, when you think of Jason, you think of the hockey mask. But my favorite, I think, is always going to be the one from Part Two. Okay. Now I got kind of a, a controversial answer to this. To me, you guys, honestly, I think the one who is just absolutely Jason, it would probably have to be Kane Hodder. I think he Mm. is the quintessential Jason. The one, when I picture uh, Jason Voorhees in my mind, it ends up being an image of Kane Hodder. However, are you talking about him in Jason Goes to Hell? (laughs) I I thought maybe, Jay, you were going to say the coroner from Jason Goes to Hell. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, that's hilarious. No, I'm not talking about that. But let me just say my favorite, my favorite Jason performance is by Derek Mears in this remake. And I actually, I hope to get to see more of him in that role. Yeah, he's excellent. Yeah, my three favorites, you know, I like a lot of the Jasons, to be honest. Part four is is my favorite movie. But I think C.J. Graham in part six, to me, is the look that's kind of, he's like kind of doing everything I want Jason to do. He's moving the way I want Jason to move. He looks the way I want Jason to look. I just love the part six. Jason Voorhees is played by C.J. Graham. I will say Kane Hodder gets there a couple times. I think it, I really like him in Jason Takes Manhattan. And I like parts of him in uh, part seven. I really dislike him in, in Jason Goes to Hell. Yeah. I think he does a terrible job in that, Kane Hodder. And I will agree with you, Derek Mears is probably my third favorite. So yeah, C.J. Graham and Kane Hodder in part eight, and then uh, Derek Mears. Well, and just to defend, and I understand that Kane Hodder is not necessarily the most, what's the word, the most gracious uh, person, and maybe he's just sick of signing autographs, so I can't speak to that, but I do want to defend him in his performance in Jason Goes to Hell, because I think after what we have seen him do, that must have been some sort of direction problem. Do you agree or not? I mean, I don't know, man. It's so bad. It's just I mean, a mess of a movie from start to finish. A lot of it's the makeup and the and the wardrobe. I mean, it's hard to overcome. Yeah, the look that look. Um, so you know, I won't blame it, put it all on him, but right. Um, yeah, part. I mean, he. I think he's perfect in part eight, and I think he's nearly perfect in part seven. I do think he does a bit much, goes a bit too far with it in part seven. But but if you look at these actors, like with their with the mask off, okay. The two that I think the most formidable looking guy is Derek Mears to me as well. And that also kind of like reinforces my, the fact that he's my favorite, but also he looks formidable and Kane Hodder. So the two guys, and and I realize everybody can do a hard looking face for a photo, but I'm just saying that the guys that were my favorite Jason's also kind of look tough in real life as well. Well, CJ Graham's bigger than... Hotter. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, he he's impressive too. I I'm I'm glad you mentioned him. He definitely deserves to be mentioned. What about Richard Brooker? I haven't heard any love yet for him. He's fine. I thought he was good too. He'd probably be my number three. Just saying. Well, it's good to know. Let's do our first drawing of the evening, I guess now, and we'll dip into the horror movie podcast hat and pick out a name and see who's going to win that DVD four pack with the first four films. Jay, do you want to do the honors on that? Yes, I do. I'm very excited about this. And the first winner is Nathan Tolley. And maybe it's T-O-L-L-E who listed the top three Friday the 13th films as number one, Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, part six. 
number two, Friday the 13th, part two, and number three, Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh. And, and yeah, that's his number three. And so, um, anyways, we want to thank Nathan. So, Nathan is from Portland, Oregon, everybody. So, shout out to Portland. That is a beautiful and lovely city. I love Portland. I've enjoyed myself there on a couple occasions. So, Nathan, what you can do is uh, just email me your actual mailing address, and I will send you this Friday the 13th DVD four-pack of the first four films. Congratulations, Nathan. Excellent. We've got a lot of listeners in Portland, actually, and I, I'm going to be spending a lot of time there. My in-laws just moved to Portland, so I think I'm actually going to be up there for spring break this year. But Nice. All yeah. right. Well, let's do some lists. I liked hearing uh, Nathan's list. Let's do our first list here. Why don't we do our top three kills, and then we'll hear the listeners' top three kills, and then we'll do the drawing for the Jason Takes Manhattan poster after that. Okay, that sounds great. So you, Sounds good. I'm dying to hear Dr. Shocks. Can, can we have him go first? All right, sure. I can do that. Starting with my number three kill, it's the face, I guess, not through the wall, but into the wall of that uh, RV in part six. (laughs) Why am I laughing? I feel like such a sicko. I thought that was so cool the first time I saw it, and every time since then. Uh, I really like that kill. And I did, that's one of the things I always remembered about that movie, actually, was that, that quick clip of that face just going into the side or uh, what would have been the bathroom of the RV and coming out you know, the other side. Nice. So, yeah, that's my number three. Nice. Okay. Uh, I'll go next. Um, my number three is, is actually – it's kind of double-faceted, which is it, – it's from Friday the 13th, 1980. It's from the first film – the character is Annie, played by Robbie Morgan. And what happens is it's the throat slit in the forest there. And that kill is my third favorite for a couple of different reasons. Number one, she is like the Janet Lee, um, the false protagonist, like we've talked about in Psycho, which I love. So that adds an extra weight to that kill, especially the first time you see it. It's so shocking. And number two, I still say to this day, I still think that is one of the most convincing throat slashes that I've seen in a horror movie. I mean, I would rate it in the top five, at least. And it's just really disturbing because she's a a very pleasant and sweetheart of a character. And then just to to have her just wiped out in such a a brutal way is just really disturbing. Josh? Oh, man, I I really had a hard time (laughs) choosing my number three. It was between two kills. Um from the same movie, but I think I'm going to go with uh, Rob getting killed in the basement in Friday the 13th part four of the final chapter. Um, There's something so terrifying to me that we don't really see it. And the way he screams when he's being killed, you know, my imagination does way worse things than even Tom Savini can do. And uh, that kill of Rob just scares the living crap out of me still to this day. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Yeah. There's something and plus the whole, the whole basement aspect of it. Right. I mean, there's something really, what's the word? (laughs) I don't know. You, you just, you, you're all, you're afraid your whole life that you're going to get killed in your basement by a psycho. And then to watch it, I mean, to have it bear out on screen, it's very (laughs) upsetting. (laughs) 
All right, good pick, good pick. Okay, uh, Dr. Shock, what's your number two? All right, my number two is the, um, I don't know, I have it written down here, it's the Upside Down Chop from part three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the splits. Yeah, the, the split in part three. Oh. Handstand split, yeah. The handstand split. If you, if you want to think of a worse way to die, I don't know if you could. That's that's pretty bad. So yeah, that's one. And again, from part three, you just always kind of gravitate towards towards that one. So yeah, that's my number two. Nice. Okay. Well, my number two is probably no surprise to anybody, and that is, of course, um, the sleeping bag head bash against the tree from Friday Thirteenth Part Seven: The New Blood. That kill is, um, as we discussed in the episode, it is one of the most brutal and simple kills in the entire franchise it gives me the chills i just love it okay josh your number two okay well again this comes from friday the 13th for the final chapter and um i bet some people think they know what it is uh but it's not jimmy even though i think jimmy's is one of the best Mm -hmm. again because he's so likable but this is actually going to be tina because i think uh her flying out the window was so shocking to me. The first time I saw that happen, (laughs) Um, it's just so cool. It's terrifying that she's just standing by a window. All of a sudden gets thrown out, (laughs) burst through the window and thrown out of it from the second story. I don't know. That to me was just one of the coolest. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I agree. Okay. Dr. Shock. Now for your number one, For, for my number one. Now, let me just throw out there that, one that uh, almost made it, and it's sort of a double kill, and it's interesting because it's both from part eight. It's uh, the the death of the first mate and the captain. Um, wow. uh, you know, yeah. where you have the first mate after just talking about how he has a young child at home, how Jason just comes up and just so nonchalantly just skewers him. <laughs> several and times. Yes. Several times. <laughs> and then you have the, uh, the the ship's captain with with the throat's throat cut. Jason, I thought that one was very, very effective the way they did that one, too, because it just sort of slowly yeah. opens up. And you guys, you know, and- I have to admit, you helped me appreciate that that more during our episode when we discussed that, because up to that point, I hadn't really thought about it the way that you guys did, about how um, disturbing it is in, in how quiet. I think Josh mentioned that it's a very quiet, and it's just, it's so ruthless and heartless. Right. But yeah, so you guys really sold me more on that kill. That would be an honorable mention. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. But for me, the, the number one is another face smash, and this one from Jason X. I just always like that, the frozen face smashing it into the onto the table and, and it cracking, but it's really what's left after the face disappears. Yeah. yeah that, that I think is what makes it so strong. But yeah, that one, I actually look forward to that scene every time that I, that I watch that movie. So, yeah, that's my number one. That's one of the most impressive, um, I guess, production values in that film, actually. Yeah, uh, it almost doesn't, yeah, yeah, it almost doesn't match the rest of Jason X because that's a, so well done, actually. It's crazy. And then the, one of the other most impressive looking kills is in part uh, nine, which, or, you know, Jason Goes to Hell, which, again, you would never suspect from that film mm-hmm. the, with the tent scene. But, oh, the um, tent, right, yeah. 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 It's the only part of that movie really worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, my number one, and Wolfman Josh, in your tallies and in my tally, I mean, this has not come up a lot 
which I was surprised. I thought this would be on everybody's list. But for me, this is without question my number one. And maybe people feel like this is too cliche. But in the first film, the Kevin Bacon, the yeah. the arrow up through mm-hmm. the, the neck and it comes out the throat. That thing, that still looks absolutely convincing to me when I watch it today. It is incredibly well done. And man, yep. that freaks me out the most out of all these kills. I think that one disturbs me more. It makes me wiggle in my seat more than mm-hmm. any other kill in this entire franchise. That's my number one. I think it's probably super significant in horror as well. I mean, I think that was a, a major moment in horror cinema at that point. And a lot of it's because of who it's happening to. I mean, Kevin Bacon, you know, this is an actor who would go on to do other things as well. But you're right. I mean, it's such a well done and very simple in a way, but still really effective. Well, the other thing is, just imagine yourself. Imagine that you had to come up with that particular kill and how you were going to pull off the special effects. I mean, I think we've all done, like, things where we were trying to fool somebody with a magic trick where, you know, you put a sword through your arm or something. I mean, just imagine right. how hard that would be to come up with that very... <laughs> it's so clever, and it's almost seamless, really. Right. Anyways, yeah. I'll stop raving, but okay, no, it's, it's, it's an impressive one for sure. I mean, my number one is a little anticlimactic because I, I've already mentioned it on the sh- podcast and you guys have mentioned it on this very episode. But to me, the sleeping bag kill in part seven is my favorite slasher movie kill of all time. It scares the crap out of me. It terrified me when I was younger. And I still think about it every time I go camping, which is frequently. So, I mean, this is a, this is a kill that plays a big part in my life. And, um, yeah. And and it's amazing. And I wish, I only wish that the MPAA hadn't cut so much out of it because Mm. it's scary as crap. And I, I back you on that Wolfman, obviously. I mean, it was my number two, but, and I think, I'm sorry if I said this, it seems like I already said this on a previous episode, but I think the cool thing about that one psychologically is as a kid, you always think if I hide down in my sleeping bag, I am safe from the monster, but you are not. Anyway, I love that. Okay. All right, well, now let's check out the listeners' top three kills. Yes. There are two notable kills here that were mentioned frequently, but not enough to make the top three. They were very close to making the top three, though, so I do want to mention them. They are the previously mentioned Head Freeze and Smash in Jason X, mm-hmm. and the and then the other is the Eyeball Pop in uh, <laughs> Part 3 in 3D. Bunch of sickos. No, I'm just kidding. so our listeners our listeners top three kills here number three julius's head getting punched off (laughs) in friday the 13th part eight Uh. number two the aforementioned sleeping bag kill in friday the 13th part seven and the number one kill none of us had it on our lists it's mark in the wheelchair, getting the machete to the head and then flying down however 20 flights of stairs uh, that he does in yeah. uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. That was our audience's mm-hmm. number one kill by a long shot, by the way. That yes. was our, that our number one kill. That really affected nice. people. And yeah, it is disturbing for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's dip one more time into the Horror Movie Podcast hat and pick out another name. We are going to draw a winner for the Jason takes Manhattan poster. Oh, I'll I'll go ahead and reach in here and see what we got. All right, buddy. Oh, awesome. Okay. I I was rooting for 
Snowy Otter is our winner. So congratulations <laughs> to her. Right. Yes. She wanted this. She did. She wanted that so bad. And I'm so happy for her. Okay. All right. Nice. <laughs> congratulations, Excellent. Snowy Otter. So email us your information at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and we'll get that Jason Takes Manhattan poster to you. We spent a lot of time talking about Portland Snowy Otters from Minneapolis, Minnesota. So shout out to Minneapolis as well. Heck yeah. All right, let's move on to our second discussion topic, one that I'm really interested in, and uh, we're calling it Some Kind of Monster, because we spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what kind of monster Jason is uh, during the course of this this, uh, franchise discussion. Um, You know, Zombie came up, pretty much nobody was happy with that one. Uh, Willis Wheeler came up with one of our best, I think, which was uh, a spirit of vengeance. But I did have a little bit of a problem with that because it wasn't physical. Was that and really Willis's? Because I'm pretty sure I was pushing. He, he, that. Brought, he brought it. He brought up that term, and oh, I think I geez. think I think the term that he brought up fit well with what you were trying to communicate. Willis is but, a punk. Oh, but to me, look at you, Jade's trying to muscle in on Willis's uh, Willis's fame and glory. Uh, my personal favorite was bought, brought up by David, uh, our listener, on uh, the uh, message boards over on the website at horrormoviepodcast.com. He's the one that came up with the term, or at least introduced me to the term. I'd never heard it before of revenant. And um, nice. I'm just going to read some of David's comments that he left on the on the comment board because I thought it was great. It's a little bit long, so prepare yourselves. Settle in. You're going to learn something about revenants here. David says, I am far from being an expert on this kind of stuff, so take my comments with a large grain of salt. But my impression of the revenant archetype is that it's a spirit that has the ability to take on a tangible physical form, maybe composed of ectoplasm or some other ethereal element, or actually possesses the decaying shell of its old corporal body in an effort to carry out its acts of malice or vengeance. I don't think anything as specific as a curse has to be involved, but it's generally held that a revenant appears due to some tragedy or injustice that takes place in its living past. I'm thinking the Headless Horseman from Sleepy Hollow might qualify, and I'm sure I've heard the spirit from Ghost Story described as a revenant. I'd say the monsters in both the Father's Day and Something to Tide You Over segments of Creepshow would also count. Maybe even the old lady in room 237. Also the character of Schwick, and I apologize for mispronouncing that if I did, um, from one of my favorites, The Beyond, is maybe a revenant. In fact, Fulci seems to have a thing for revenants. The priest who commits suicide in City of the Living Dead might well be classed as one. Either way, neither of these characters are just plain zombies. They have tragic backstories that inform their return from the dead, and they seem somewhat purposeful in their actions. I'm totally unsure whether or not a revenant has to come back of its own volition, or, as might be the case with Josh, Josh's suggestion of Pet Cemetery, it could be summoned by the dabbling of another party in some sort of black magic. I wouldn't suggest that the classification of Jason as a revenant really does much to clear up the franchise's continuity problems. I'm pretty sure that the writers didn't sit down at one point with a book of supernatural phenomenon and say, hey, let's have Jason be a revenant. It's just a term that, if we're trying to categorize him, I feel describes his post part six appearances better than zombie. And again, that's from David and he knocked it out of the park. As far as I'm concerned, David wins. Yeah. Da- David wins. <laughs> that, that, Incredible. that was amazing. David. 
Yeah. Hmm. So from now on, in all honesty, if somebody asks me if I'm ever on a horror podcast and somebody tries to ask me what what Jason is, I'm going to say he's a revenant and just real confident. I'm going to say it like that. Now, not everybody was happy about this sort of discussion that we were having uh, on the podcast. Some people don't like to go dig this deep with their Jason monster. Doc, you have a pretty interesting comment from Juan. If I'm yeah, I, I do. This, this is from Juan, who who kind of, uh, I guess, took it in a different direction. He said, uh, you know, when I was younger, I never thought of Jason as any kind of monster. Jason was Jason, and that was that. And growing up really didn't change my perspective on him. Uh, I guess I always had him alongside other famous monsters that were their own entity. I have to admit that all the theories are a lot of fun and very interesting, but like with Michael Myers, I prefer my Jason Voorhees to be more on the mysterious side rather than know for a fact what he is and where he came from. Well, you're in luck, one because the writers left you plenty of room <laughs> to decide <laughs> right. for yourself. <laughs> oh, that's great. But it is. I mean, you know, you can always make a case. That's why That's why people had their issues with Rob Zombie's version of Halloween. You know, with Michael Myers, uh, they, they preferred the – the Dr. Loomis uh, description of he's pure evil. I saw nothing but, you know, evil in his eyes and, and that he was dead. And that's what they prefer. They prefer to think of him as as because that's that is definitely infinitely more frightening than a kid, you know, from a from a white trash neighborhood. <laughs> right. Well said. All right. Well, let's move on to our next discussion topic. This is something that came up that's kind of along the lines of this. And it kind of, yeah, I guess it goes with the Revenant or some kind of monster discussion. This was something that was brought up by our good friend Levi, the unknown murderer on the message boards. He's and so he, awesome. He really is. And he had a great line here uh, that he left for us that really kind of flies in the face of all of the mocking uh, that I did of Jason here uh, when he was, you know, talking about all of his terrible continuity and, and fantasy life. Uh, explanations for how Jason Voorhees uh, operates. Um, Levi put me in my place, and I think he did it very tastefully and very well. He said, it's a campfire tale series. So each story told by another is going to be a bit different than what another said about Jason. I mean, it's it's simple, but it's it gets to the heart of the matter. We're dealing mm-hmm. with, like, with campfire stories, and I love that. And I'm actually, I can embrace that. And I can embrace all of these problems if I think about it in that way. I think that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, I like Absolutely. that too. So Chris Robo, he also left an interesting comment. You know, he was obviously our guest when we discussed Freddy versus Jason. He kind of responded to this same idea that Levi put out there. And uh, Doc, you've got that one. Yep. Okay. It's uh, Jason is an urban legend, a campfire tale. And as is the case with so many urban legends, on the surface, it seems believable. But if you examine the particulars, these things tend to fall apart. It's interesting that the filmmakers themselves called the ending to part one the carry ending. I think that says a lot about the intent to why it was there, rip off or not. It's there to give you a sense of unease. Is it a dream? Is it the ghost of Jason? Ultimately, as in Carrie, we'll never know. Is it a ghost, monster, guy in the woods we thought was dead but isn't? I don't know. Why is the same urban legend that was told 30 years ago still being whispered amongst kids today? But I do agree that if you try to logically connect the dots, given what's in the films, it's ultimately an act of futility. And then Scott Waller, another listener, uh, followed up with kind of the last comment on this. It's a campfire story and emerged very nicely with the Revenant 
uh, comment from before. So I, I really like this. Scott said, would it be applicable to have a category of horror movie predator that is a campfire story or urban legend? Like the Candyman, the Tooth Fairy, the Boogeyman, even Freddy has a skip song that figures heavily into his franchise. I've always liked the tragic death attached to a location, so the angry spirit still out there, body never found, will get you plot device. <laughs> Perhaps in contemporary <laughs> cinematic storytelling, nice. The Revenant and The Spirit of Vengeance become the same. So I, I loved that from Scott, and he kind of connected the dots between Willis and Chris Robo and, and, and Levi. David. Yeah, and, and David, David and yeah. all those guys. And, and it's a nice uh, summing up kind of of this idea. So thank you guys all. I think that's really great that's stuff. Excellent. Stuff that we never would have come up with on our own, and and it's really, really good stuff. Yeah, these people always just impress me to no end. I'm always blown away by this. So I thought if we started with um, part one of our franchise review and cover Friday the 13th through Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and we can go through each of the films and uh, talk about them a little bit. And as I mentioned earlier um, in this episode series, I bought this Friday the 13th collection DVD set that has the first eight films in it. And with each of them, there come a few little factoids as well as the body counts and weapons used and stuff like that. So I thought I'd start out each of our brief discussions with um, with some of these facts from the DVD case. Nice. So um, with regard to the first Friday the 13th, it had its theatrical release on Friday, May 9th, 1980. So not, not the 13th, ironically. Yeah. Um, it was ranked number one at the box office on opening weekend. It's a uh, working title was a long night at Camp Blood mm-hmm. and Harry Harry Crosby who plays Bill is the son of Bing Crosby and the body count was 10 in this movie according to the DVD now Dino and a few other people on the message boards were trying to figure out if this was accurate um, were there 13 kills the trailer of the original movie kind of leads you to believe there are 13 kills but according to the official Friday the 13th uh, release materials there were 10 kills in the original film and the weapons used were four a knife, an arrow, an axe, and a machete. So that's Friday the 13th, the original film. Mm-hmm. So let's check out some of the listeners' comments, and then we can uh, maybe comment on those. Okay. So the first movie, there were two listener comments that I thought were interesting, and they actually both come from The Dude. So Doc and I will each read one of those, and uh, then we can talk about them a little bit. Doc, do you want to take the first one? Yeah, this is from The Dude. He says, first off, many of the details about Jason's death are given to the viewer by Mrs. Voorhees in part one. I have a hard time taking her comments at face value simply because she's batshit crazy. <laughs> Perhaps she has simply created the history of her son dying, or she just assumes that he's dead to justify her killings. Second, is it that far-fetched? If Jason has a disability, is it not possible that he almost drowned and in the aftermath he was panicked and lost in the woods? His survival instinct takes over and he disassociates from his previous existence. So, Jay, I wanted to ask you about that because I think those are pretty reasonable conclusions to draw based on the information we have in the first film about how he could be a physical being in part two. Do either of those work for you? Either of the dude's uh, ideas there? The dude, I'm getting a little bit mad at you, the dude. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to know. No, I'm just kidding. That's actually a great comment. But I just want to know this. Why does everyone want to remove the most powerful aspect of this film, which is the fact that her motivation is... It's a mother grieved. Um, I, I mean, man, 
there is nothing more powerful than that to me. I mean, of all the horrific forces that I could think of, if you took a mother's child away negligently, then you would be screwed. And I think that's why this movie is so powerful. Everything within me revolts against any other theories, and I'm very close-minded about this because I think it's just such a powerful premise, and I wish more horror films had that premise. And so I'm I'm sorry. I think the dude's comment's great, but I refuse to accept it. Okay, I just want to ask you one follow-up question to that, and I think I asked you this before, but I don't remember what your answer was. Wouldn't it be just as powerful if she, and maybe even more tragic, if she thought that he was dead, but he actually wasn't? I mean, because she's still going to react the same way. She's still going to have all of that sorrow that she would have were he really dead. But now yeah. she's killed people and she was incorrect. She was wrong. Right. And you brought this up in a previous episode and we didn't really get to flesh it out. So I'm glad it came up again. And this is very hard to articulate, but I'll try. The fact that it is tragic, it would be tragic if she believed he was dead and he wasn't. That would be tragic. I'll give you that. But if you weigh in terms of the universe being wronged, right? It's like, if he's actually dead, that's more powerful to me. And her anger, therefore, is validated. Her vengeance has validation behind it, and it's justified. Whereas if he's not dead, then she's killing people wrongfully, and I think that makes the the premise weaker because she's not really justified. Yeah, I don't know if it makes it weaker, though, because it's still, I would say it's it's more tragic, in fact. I mean, like, that's good. That's good tragedy. That's good. That's Romeo and Juliet. She didn't need to kill herself. He wasn't really dead. That is the chink. Or in vice versa. Sorry. <laughs> that is right. the chink in my armor, as they say, because horror films are two things. Horror films are sorrow taken to the extreme or fear taken to the extreme. Right. And both of those paths lead to death. Right. And that's what horror films are. So I could see what you're talking about. I could see that being legitimate. But for me personally, I, I still think I would prefer it if it were actually happened and he really was dead and she was justified. Hmm. All right. I'm not going to fight you anymore. And I think um, <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I agree with you that I think Pamela Voorhees uh, is what makes the first film so amazing. And I think it's it's a pretty good stock and slash up to that point. But um, her performance is, I think, what takes it to the next level. Yes. So, um, and you're right. And that's her motivation is what makes it ultimately so powerful. Yeah. Anything else we want to say about the first movie before we move on that we haven't yet said? No. no. I don't really have anything <laughs> new to add. I don't think we have much to add to this next one either, especially considering it's our listeners' favorite film of the franchise. Um, and, you know, we did spend quite a lot of time talking about it. But um, Friday the 13th Part 2, here's some Friday facts for you. This theatrical release was on Friday, May 1st, 1981. Again, not a Friday the 13th. That's disappointing. <laughs> but it was also ranked number one at the box office on opening weekend, which is incredible. Uh, the budget for this one shot up from 550000 to $1,250,000 for Part 2. So that's amazing that that's the case. Um, and then the body count here, 10 deaths again, same as the first movie, but instead of just four instruments of destruction, there are actually nine weapons used in this film. Impressive. There's a knife, a machete, a spear, a claw hammer. We remember that one. Barbed wire, <laughs> ice pick, pick axe, pitchfork, and Jason's bare hands. Terrifying. Nice. Mm-hmm. And I actually did contemplate putting that that claw of a hammer 
as one of my top three, but it just disturbs me so much. I just, I just couldn't do it. There's just that claw end of a hammer that kill always gets me every time. You know, you guys mentioned your love for, I believe it was Jay actually, was it that mentioned your love for uh, the Jason Voorhees in this chapter of the story? Yeah, I was oh, me. It? I, that was my favorite. Oh, he was my I apologize. favorite. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So, um, so there's somebody who agrees with you, or one of our listeners. We've got a comment from Armored Foe who would agree with you. Okay, I really like this. I feel like I'm part of a Ken Burns documentary doing it this way. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. This is from Armored Foe. Parts two, three, and four are my trilogy. That's all I need. The rest are just fun movies to watch. To me, Jason was at his scariest in part two due to the deformed hillbilly redneck vibe with the added positive of the burlap sack on his head. Such a stunning look and overall scary mood. As Jay said, he was lanky and fast, just plain scary all around. Very cool. Yep. And then uh, and I agree. Just, uh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And then some of the listeners had some choice words for me. They thought my rating was a bit low. Uh, for Friday the 13th Part 2, despite the fact that I, I recommended it highly. Jay, do you want to... I thought you would enjoy possibly reading some of the reactions <laughs> to my rating here. Yeah, I think you needed to be scolded a little bit for that, Josh. Just a little, though. I mean, not a lot. <laughs> okay, so this is called Halloweenies, right? <laughs> that is correct. Okay. That's the subheading that I've chosen for it. Okay, I, I like that. I like that. All right, uh, so Snowy Otter writes... Really, Josh? A six for part two? You're wrong. That is all. <laughs> Snowy otter. <laughs> That's great. And then the dude writes, I'm glad that someone called him out on this. Part two is one of, if not the strongest film in the series. But what do you expect from a Halloweeny? <laughs> all right. And then and then Dino writes. Can we now say Halloweeny is an official alternate nickname for Wolfman Josh? I was a bit bummed when no, no you may not. Dino. No, <laughs> yeah, you may yeah. not. <laughs> I was a bit bummed when nobody picked that up on my comments for the previous episode. So your mention of it brought a little sunshine to my day. And then finally, one um, said, "Wow, is everyone against Josh on this one? Isn't that Jay's job?" <laughs> so what does he mean by that? <laughs> I have no well, idea. I, I, I don't know. Maybe the relish that you that you took in reading those comments. No, I I think uh, he. <laughs> no, no, I think he, he was saying that. Um, usually I'm disagreeing with Josh all the time, and right. and so having other people do it is really a refreshing little break for me. So thanks everybody, because I'm sick of Josh. <laughs> I'm sick of Josh usually being right and me being you know, laughed to scorn. So anyway, th that's pretty funny, Josh. <laughs> and you're a good sport, Josh, for collecting those for everybody to hear. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to talk a little bit about part three now. Um, this is, you know, there is a certain subset of, of our listeners that this is their favorite movie. And um, I don't see that, but I, I can appreciate it. And there are a lot of interesting things in this film uh, for sure. I'm going to read some of the Friday facts for us. Um, this one had its theatrical release date on Friday the 13th. Finally, how long did it take there to get go. that right? <laughs> Jeez. Movie three of <sighs> August 1982. This was also ranked number one at the box office on opening weekend. Incredible three in a row. This was originally released in 3D, as we know. And it had a theatrical re-release on Friday the 13th, 1983 in 2D. 
This had a budget of 2500000 so another huge jump, doubling the Part 2 budget. This is the first of the Friday 13th movies to use Jason's iconic hockey mask. We knew that. And we have, for the first time in Part 3, our first ethnic characters in series. Now, I think anyone of any ethnicity is ethnic, but I think they're referring to ethnic minorities when they say that. This one, uh, there's a body count of 12 in this movie. So Jason's up the ante finally from 10 to 12, getting again closer to 13, which would be the magic number, I think, if I were making these movies. Um, and yes. he used 10 weapons of destruction in this film. He used a butcher knife, a crochet needle, pitchfork, hatchet, machete, harpoon gun, hot fireplace poker, knife, electrical box, and again, Jason's bare hands. Is is anybody else with me on the fact that, you know, after having machetes and bows and arrows, then you have this sissy one, crochet needle. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> like, what is that about? Like, I don't know. I don't know. If I was getting stabbed with a crochet needle, I wouldn't be thinking, oh, how sissy. I mean, it is a pretty gruesome looking kill, I have to say. It is actually, but I'm just saying it's kind of a sissy thing. Because I always said, this is kind of very off topic, but if there were actually a real Jurassic Park, I would totally go. Because why? Because if there's one way that I could opt to die, it would be to be (laughs) eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I would love to be eaten by a dinosaur. I know it would really suck and all that stuff. So that would be an awesome way to go. But if like I got taken out by a crochet needle, I'm going to be very disappointed by that. That's a little embarrassing. That's interesting you say that, Jay, because you know what I would do? I would I would actually buy a ticket on the Titanic. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. that, that's that's how I would. I would not if if I'm going to go down. I want I want to go down. Well, I would I would want to go down at sea. That's how I would want to go. I I'd, I'd like to. No, I really would. It's just something. I love the ocean. I love going out on a boat. And if you have any belief in past lives, I have a feeling that at least uh, there's a couple of them I was probably buried at sea. So I, there's just something about the ocean that I love. And I think I would actually, if even even if I knew ahead of time what was going to happen, I think I would probably get a ticket on the Titanic. So, oh Josh, what would be your untimely demise? If you had I'm to pick, reel, I'm still reeling from Dave's. The only thing I can think of worse than drowning in the ocean would be drowning in a bucket of toxic sludge in Manhattan. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> well, sounds brutal. To be clear, though, the people on Titanic didn't really drown. Most of them, they froze to death. <laughs> that's lucky for a them. lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them froze to death. Besides, what I understand with drowning, and I'm not sure where I read this, but that that once you actually get past the whole breathing in the water, that there's a a sense of euphoria Mm -hmm. right before you finally pass. That's true. I'd want to be skydiving and have my chute not open. Wow. Wow. Some people live through that, at least for a little bit. So I don't know if I would want that one because, man, that would be an instant death. Yeah. You got to aim your head at the ground. They're not doing it right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be my choice, I think. Uh, oh, man, there was another one I was just thinking. I mean, I would love to fight a bear, I think, you know, like in like The Edge when um, <laughs> Anthony Anthony Hopkins has to fight the bear with a spear. I would like to be in that kind of situation. If we're ever out in the forest together and a bear comes at us, then you can have that opportunity. I'll step aside <laughs> and I'll let you fight the bear. Okay. Yeah, I'll step aside and he'll, he'll walk right into Jason Voorhees. If it's a dinosaur, I call it. I guess. Speaking of Jason Voorhees, 
Uh, let's read another couple of listener comments here on part three, and then um, yeah, we'll, we can respond to those. Doc, you want to go first? Sure. This one, uh, again, from Armored Foe. Uh, this is about part three. He says, I credit this movie to my love of horror and what burned a section of my brain that left Jason as my childhood hero. To me, this movie represents Jason at his best as a lumbering hulk of a mutant man. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. I can I can definitely see that. We talked about mm-hmm. uh, the actor that played him. He is huge, and he does yeah. have that really off-kilter walk and stuff. He's a little scary. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I like that description at the very end. The last few words. What were those descriptors? A lumbering hulk of a, a lumbering hulk of a mutant man. <laughs> That's pretty good. To, <laughs> so you could say he's a revenant and a lumbering hulk of a mutant man. Well done. There you go. <laughs> and this one comes from our good friend Dino. He writes regarding the end of part three. I always interpreted Jason's reemerging from the barn and Mrs. Voorhees leaping from the water as the beginning of Chris's psychotic break. This certainly fits with the closing shots as we see her hysterically laughing as she's driven off in the police car and Jason still lying on the ground, apparently dead at the barn's door. However, there's no discussion of Jason Voorhees, Mrs. Voorhees, or the mythology surrounding the events at Camp Crystal Lake in the entire film, so we can't... <laughs> so we can't reasonably assume she knows about Mrs. Voorhees. <laughs> That's brilliant. And what yeah. this comment made me think of is how that whole psychotic break at the end, the hysterically laughing as they're driven off, you know, it reminds me so much of Marilyn Burns' character at the end of Texas Chainsaw. I mean, that's... I think that was obviously some of the inspiration for that. And we probably talked about that in the episode, but I always just really appreciate that. But it's it's a good theory, Dino. Absolutely. Let's move on to the final chapter. We can discuss that a little bit. Unless you guys have anything else you want to say about part three. Yeah. Friday facts for the final chapter. We've got a theatrical release date of Friday the 13th. Nice done. April 1984. Ranked number one at the box office over the opening weekend. This one had a slightly bigger budget of 2,600,000. Tom Savini returns uh, to the film at the end of uh, part four to assist uh, after a makeup artist was fired. Um, Skinny Dipper survival rate. This is an interesting fact. Zero (laughs) percent. Nice. And of course, it also stars famous 80s actors, Corey Feldman and Crispin Glover in some key roles. There is Tommy and Jimmy. Um, This one had a body count of 14. So they got so close with part three, they had 12. All they had to do was add one more for 13 kills. And they overshoot at this time. They overcorrect. And there's 14 in the final chapter. Um, Yeah. See, and that's... I know that you've been making jokes about this, but honestly, I think that was a huge oversight because... (laughs) Me too. I mean, honestly, think about how fun it would be if we knew going in that there were going to be 13 kills. And then as you watch the film, you're just counting them off. I think that's cool because then you could be like, oh, seven down. I got six more to go. Who's it going to be? You know? Yeah. And then you have like a double kill with somebody and you're like, oh, they got two at once. Like, they would be, it would be exciting. <laughs> That's right. Well, now, of those 14, them. of those 14 uh, is, I'm assuming one of them is Jason at the end. So you could say Jason did kill 13. Oh, well done. Now, I don't know. Now, that's another Man. good question. I don't know if they counted Tommy Jarvis killing Jason. We certainly should count that, though. That's a, that's a death in the movie. 
Um, But here are the weapons. We'll never know because a machete is how he died. But here are the weapons used. Surgical saw, scalpel, knife, harpoon gun spear. That's a go-to favorite. Corkscrew, cleaver, axe, machete. And again, Jason's bare hands. So um, some brutal kills here. Now, here's a great comment that we got from Graham. And I wanted to read this one as long as we're on the topic of weapons. I subtitled this one, So Many Machetes. (laughs) (laughs) Graham says one question I have is why the hell are there so many machetes are they anywhere close to a jungle (laughs) they are lying around in barns at camps and this bear hunter guy has a tent full of weapons but he hears a sound and he grabs a machete (laughs) that's that's so funny Yeah. But but in all honesty, like no, I mean machetes aren't just used for like the jungle. I mean, you take machetes camping to clear brush and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's not unreasonable at a camp to have a machete around. But I take your point. I think that's pretty hilarious. I, I can say with all honesty, I have never taken a machete camping with me. Well, that's why you're still here to tell the tale. Uh, probably yes. You're not a big camper, though. We didn't know that. No, that that's true. I'm I'm not a big camper. That's not a, right. not a big camper at all. So maybe if I took a machete, I'd enjoy it more. <laughs> I can almost guarantee that you would. Yeah, probably. You're probably right. Give me something to do. <laughs> okay, this is from this is from Matroid. This comment. He said, "When I was a kid, before I had seen the movies, I had always heard that Tommy takes over for Jason because he goes crazy and believes that he is Jason." And while that doesn't ultimately happen, it still sits with me while I watch part four. And something about the that conceit is comfortably frightening. Yeah, and I, mean, and it's, it's, I could see that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you see that final scene, you know, with with Corey Feldman, who I thought was just tremendous in this movie for, for a young actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought he really gave such a good performance. Um, and you see that, you know, he's got his head shaved and, and he's just you, you get the feeling that. That almost like what they were doing at the in the Halloween with Daniel Harris at the end of that one is that okay, this is this is where the next generation is is going with this. You know, this is this is the the new killer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then they totally blow it thanks to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, and I have one here from uh, our friend David, and it's titled "Now That's Jason." You guys have some incredibly thought-provoking and fascinating discussions here, and it was a joy to listen to and really got me thinking about elements of the franchise that I had never even considered before. I wish you had all had a chance to elaborate a little more on the details of Part 4, but we all already know that it's the best movie in the franchise anyway, (laughs) so not to worry. And I love Josh's point nearer the end about Parts 4 and 6 feeling the most like quote-unquote Jason movies. I totally agree with that. In fact, I'd say 4 and 6 come closest to what my warped childhood mind imagined these films to be before I'd even seen one when all that fueled my imagination were images in the TV guide of a gross-looking hockey guy with a knife, they are the quintessential 80s horror icon movies. David. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more, David. Absolutely. Yes. Let's move on to part five, I guess, Mm -hmm. and hear a few more Friday facts. Theatrical release date, Friday, March 22nd. Boo. 1985. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Ranked number one at the box office opening weekend yet again. 
a slight budgetary fall off this time, two million two hundred thousand. Um, the working title of this film, as we discussed, is Repetition, which is so funny to me. <laughs> Here are a couple of random stats. Number of stalled cars, two. Number of stalled chainsaws, one. Number of words spoken by Tommy Jarvis, 24. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, this movie had a body count of 21, which is wow. by far the most of the franchise, at least to this point. And, uh, you know, we talked about this, how there had to be one every few minutes or so. And we have a few comments, I guess, that kind of talk about that a bit. But first, I just mentioned the weapons used. We have 11 different weapons used in this movie. We have a road flare, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> An axe, a knife, a machete, garden shears, which is honestly could have made my top three list. It's one of the coolest kills, I think. Leather strap. It was scary, but a little underwhelming. Long metal spike in the in the toilet. We remember that. A tractor, a railroad spike, a chainsaw, and a cleaver. All right. Well, I have I have a comment here from Dino uh, for part five. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed part five. I'm not going to go as far as to say it's a good movie, but I did find it to be very watchable and fun. The two things that bugged me the most, other than the comically annoying characters of which there were plenty, were that it absolutely blew the golden mystery and suspense opportunities it had going for it. Unfortunately, the movie did nothing to earn the payoff, so the reveal was completely ineffective. There were so many humdrum kills that happened way too abruptly. If the filmmakers paid more attention to developing the suspense in some of those kill scenes, it could have been an extremely suspenseful movie. It could have been so much better. But it's not as bad as I remembered. What do you have to say about that, Doc? I mean, I agree with him. I think, well, obviously about the characters. That was what was my biggest turnoff for, uh, of, of the movie. And yeah, I think because they were doing so many kills for every how many minutes, that yes, yeah, some of them, I mean, there were some good ones. There's no doubt there were some good ones. But then there were a few that were just sort of like, you got the, you know, just sort of toss-offs. And so I can I can see that. And yes, it didn't do anything to earn that reveal at the end. I absolutely no. agree with that. You know, I mean, the, 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 by, by just having him sort of open his eyes wide when he gets there, you know, and that scene, first off, they're sort of setting it up. So I don't know. It, it didn't work at any level for me. So you would not agree with his last statement that it wasn't as bad as he remembered? Oh, no, I think for Dino, it wasn't as bad as he remembered. But for me, it, it was as bad as I remembered. Oh. Okay. Two two things to say. Um, number one, I think that's really interesting because so often when we're revisiting movies, they end up being worse than we remember. So that's lucky, Dino, and I'm happy for you. And then, Doc, <laughs> in your description, this is the... um the junior high school, you know, real mature Jay of the dead coming out in me. But did you say toss offs? <laughs> yeah. Well, toss away, throw away, I guess. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I've, I've just, it just struck me funny. I, I just, if people were wondering why I was laughing, that's why. And I apologize. Jay, Jay okay. has a different definition of tossing off. I'm <laughs> I, I guess, I guess he does. That's right. I guess he does. <laughs> and I, I know it well. Okay. So, <laughs> Now, I have one more uh, bit of praise for part five. Uh, it comes from our friend Scott Waller. He says, as a fan of bad movies, I'm going to confess that I love this movie. Part of the Friday the 13th franchise or not. As a piece of 1980s slasher culture, it's amazing. If I was back in grad school, I would get so many papers out of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. That's awesome. Oh, I will say one thing. I do have one thing to add 
in the comments, there was a lot of talk of it as a standalone movie and comparing it to Halloween 3. The difference is Halloween 3 was designed to be a standalone movie. That was designed to be away from the Michael Myers universe. They knew going in that was a standalone. With Friday the 13th Part 5, they had every intention of continuing the franchise. It was never designed to be a standalone by the filmmakers. That's after the fact. Because of who the killer was, That you can say, oh, it's a standalone movie. It was never designed to be that way. So because it wasn't designed to be a standalone, and it is a standalone, it makes it a little bit of a little, it's just a bit of a failure because it was supposed to be part of the series. So it's not really comparable to Halloween 3 from its conception. Now you can say it is. Now you can look at it as a standalone because of who the killer was, but that was never the design of the movie up front. That's well put. Yes, it is. Yeah. There were some people getting after Doc saying, uh, well, if you're the people who don't like this, are the same people who don't like uh, Halloween 3. And, and Doc said, no, I like Halloween 3. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't like this, which I thought was funny. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's move on to part six then. We'll talk a little bit about that. I've got some Friday facts. Once again, the theatrical release date. Now, I blame, first of all, I just want to say before we get to part six, this is one of my favorite films of the franchise, as I mentioned. You know, oftentimes when a movie, and we have this discussion with Willis Wheeler, I feel like, all the time over on Movie Podcast Weekly when he's talking about the Transformers franchise and how good this one is because it made this much money and how bad this movie is because it didn't. And, I think there's this weird thing in in Hollywood. I, I noticed this with the Meet the Parents franchise, <laughs> where the first film is extremely popular, and I would say the first film in that franchise is good, but the second film in that franchise made the most money. And so they're like, oh, people love the second one. That's, that's where it's at. No, 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 no. Anyone saw the second one because the first one was good. Correct. They didn't go right. see this. And so, and so th- what they do that's so stupid is they build a – Universal Studios attraction based around Meet the Fockers, which nobody <laughs> wanted that. It's so that, dumb. Yeah, uh, because people, it's the same thing with Part 5, with how with Friday the 13th Part 5. You said how it made so much money. It was number one. It made a lot of money. But you know a lot of people were probably walking out of the theater saying, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so I blame all of the problems that Friday the 13th Part 6 had on the terrible installment of part five. I'm just trying to say that up front because really, if you look at critical review and Juan was kind enough to send us the rotten tomatoes rankings for all of these films with the, both the critical response and the audience response factored in together, which I thought was great. That's amazing Um, one. Yeah. Thank you, sir. So the best reviewed film on rotten tomatoes of these movies was the original Friday the 13th at 58%. Because not of the be- motivation was right. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. But not far behind that was Friday the 13th Part 6 at 54%, which again, I get it. I, I see why that would be the case. But rank number two at the box office, this is the first time the franchise falls from the number one spot on its opening weekend to number two, which I was really sad to see. This one was released on Friday, August 1st. That could have had something to do with it. Morons. Uh, 1986. <laughs> <laughs> this had a bigger budget of $3 million, and the working title for this movie, which is insane, is Aladdin Sane, which is really weird. One of my favorite facts from this movie that we didn't really discuss in our review, I don't think, was that Alice Cooper wrote three original songs for the movie, which I think was awesome. Yeah. And uh, here's a funny statistic. The average amount of time it takes for characters to get over a friend's death 
two minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the way it is in all these movies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even less in the later films. Yes. It's right. Hilarious. I was just saying, as William mentioned when we reviewed the remake, like, hey, I know her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So this one has a body count of 18. So a little bit, a little bit of a dip from part five, but I would say more in the reasonable realm uh, compared to part five. And there were nine weapons used. We had a metal spear, a machete, whiskey bottle, which is a nice addition, a knife, dart, rack. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, rock, exacto blade. There was a rack Out- in this movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> Outboard motor and Jason's bare hands. Though I'm assuming, Doc, they're going to count Jason's bare hands. For your favorite kill, which is the smash the head into the oh yeah, the I wall. guess I would think so. Yeah, no, they didn't. They didn't put uh, SUV wall here, but mm-hmm. RV wall. Yeah, no, that RV would wall. Be, yeah. That would be bare hands, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's check out. Uh, we only had one listener comment that I pulled for this one, but Jay, you had that. Yeah, this one comes from Chris, and Chris writes regarding part six. I actually love this one because I really enjoy Zombie Jason. I thought this one was well acted, and I thought Tom Matthews was great as Tommy. I could have done without the corporate paintball players, but at least they added some interesting kills. I love the look of Jason in this one and part seven. Overall, this one is up there with part four as one of my favorites in the series. That's from Chris. Awesome. Yeah, those uh, yeah. the paintball players were just <laughs> that's... well, the one guy, the the one guy who was sort of traipsing off on his own. You know that that guy was sort of annoying. See, I didn't I didn't mind the three of them that were that were together there because it's not like they were around for that long. The one who was off on his own and then he fell down and then all of a sudden he's up again. It just it didn't make a lot of sense. It's almost like the the continuity was off. You know, you thought he was going yeah. to be done at one point, then he's there again, just sort of back to his, you know, sort of, you know, sneaking around and around corners with the with the with the paintball gun. And <laughs> so that one was a bit of a mess. But the other ones didn't bother me as much. And I know paintball was in vogue and stuff, but I just I still wonder how characters like you know, the doofusy one and the one like the characters in The Last House on the Left, those two cop characters in the original. Mm. It's just like, how did these characters that are that far off, how do they get in a horror film? It really bothers me. Well, what's Craven's thinking in The Last House on the Left was he needed some 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 levity, some comedy to sort of break up the the, the intensity of it all. But you don't follow your most intense scene with a Laurel and Hardy routine. You just don't right. do it. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, my, my thing is, though, I mean, if I were to write a slasher film, and I realize, obviously, that this is uh, easier said than done, but it's like, okay, why don't you write legitimately humorous things, like real jokes, not some kind of slapstick routine, like you said, Doc, Laurel and Hardy. You mean, you mean are you talking like, Henny Youngman, take my wife, please? Or what do you mean? <laughs> I don't... Yeah, I mean, something where the humor is organic to the situation and it's actually cleverly written as opposed to okay. something just stupid. Okay. No, I, I, I could, yeah, I don't think that's even been attempted. It's like, it's almost, well, you almost get the feeling that maybe the writers for, for horror don't know how to, maybe they're not skilled at that type of humor, but they can make people fall down and think it looks funny. 
Dr. Shock calling him out, <laughs> <laughs> calling him out with a shot across the bow. All our horror writers out there. <laughs> I'm not putting them all in a lump. I'm saying from from the 80s uh, slasher subgenre. How about we put it that way? Gotcha. So, guys, part six brings up a very interesting question for me. And now it's come up before in part two, but part six really it's, it really stands out. And it's this next discussion topic. Is Friday the 13th a serious horror franchise? And I think it's hard to argue that it's not if you look at some of the insane kills that are happening in this franchise. I just can't stop thinking about the Jason Goes to Hell tent thing. It's one of the most insane things I've ever seen um, well, in a horror movie. But, you know, if we go by Dr. Walking Dead's definition of a serious horror movie. I'm not sure this passes the test. So I wanted to read these listener comments first. If we could, if doc, you could do the first one. And then uh, Jay, if you could do the second one. Okay. Got it. Okay. And this is from uh gray imp. Uh, would Jason Voorhees kill children? I've always wondered this. It looks like he sort of balked at the chance in part six, but was on the war path in part four after Tommy Jarvis. I've always felt Jason would slay the campers. It just never came to that in the series. I, I have to believe, based on what we know of Jason, he was likely tormented to an extent by other kids at the summer camp due to his obvious deformities and probably social awkwardness. There's no way that just gets away from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grant, that's, that's a good point. I think they're good points, but he doesn't kill the kids in part six. Uh, now, in Katie, part wanna- six... Did, do you, did, wasn't he, he was standing over the one girl who was awake, yes. but doesn't something draw his attention out of there? Yeah, but it's he not like he to... just walked away. It's not like he just looked at her and then walked away. Now he does walk through there without killing the kids, obviously he without slaughtering by, them. Walks by several of them. Mm-hmm. You know, we see the books they're reading and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's around the kids two or three times, at least, at least two times. And doesn't harm them in any way, or even, or even motion that he is considering harming them. Right. Well, Jay, why don't you read? Why don't you read David's comment? He makes some good points there. Okay, yeah, I'll read what David said, and then I, I have something to weigh in as well. So David writes, I guess in a way, I want to believe that Jason would kill the kids. After all, what's scary about a boogeyman who will leave you alone if you still buy Happy Meals? <laughs> <laughs> I think a part of these kind of boogeyman slasher flicks really appeal to our inner child's fear of the dark. And in a way, I feel like sparing children from any kind of threat sort of circumvents that. That said, I can certainly see folks coming out with arguments that he only kills the teens reminiscent of those associated with his own apparent death as a child and the death of his mother and anyone else who gets in his way. You could also say that as a, quote, vengeful spirit, to steal from Willis Wheeler's reading of the character. Thanks, David. <laughs> like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Again, Willis is cited. He might be predisposed to spare those considered pure and totally innocent. And that's from David. And I think actually, yep. as much as I'm teasing David here, I think David and nailed it right there. I think that the latter half there where he said he could see folks coming out with arguments that he only kills the teens... Yeah, he is kind of an angel of death or a vengeful spirit, to quote Willis's brilliance, because what happened is he is trying to make right a wrong because they were negligent and they were, as she says, making love. 
you know, he is executing justice. And so any other negligence of that sort, you know, when, when these people are being unruly and breaking all these moral codes or whatever, they're the ones that get killed. Whereas kids are innocent. And I think that um, he does not really concern himself with the innocence. I mean, he does occasionally kill outside of the teenage realm, though. I mean, he does he does kill, the, I mean, the, the hammer to the head in, in part two was delivered to a policeman who stumbled upon his cabin in the woods. But he's an adult. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah, he's an adult, but I'm saying it's not strictly a vengeance against, um, you know, um, teenagers who had done him wrong. Yeah, I I just think that with his character, and this is not written anywhere, okay, this is speculation, but like in, in some religious texts, for example, I mean, children are without blemish or sin, they're incapable of sinning, young children are until a certain age, when they reach the age of accountability, and therefore they are, you know, stained with sin, because everybody sins, and so I think that Jason is kind of plugged into that, like if those who are accountable or capable of sinning are the are those who can be killed. What you're saying is Jason believes in original sin or doesn't believe in does he not kill them because he doesn't want them to go to hell because he does believe in original sin or does he not kill them because they're pure? <laughs> what I'm saying is he does not kill children, I think, because they are pure and not capable of that kind of sinning. Like, you know, he probably you, relates to them psychologically also, I would guess. Like he sees himself as that age, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. He probably does regard himself as an innocent. But and besides when he knows when he's going to New York, he's going to be a kid again. He might, you know, he might want to, he might need some friends. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he knows he's going to be a small Asian man. So he has to prepare for that. That's right. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> I thought the same thing when I saw that. I said, is that supposed to be Jason? <laughs> so I think to me, the pressing question here is though, okay, maybe there are reasons he does or doesn't kill the kids. And we can argue that. Does that make this a, not a serious horror franchise? Not only does he not kill these kids, he doesn't kill Tommy Jarvis. He doesn't kill the little boy. I guess he's not even in, I guess part five, but that little boy doesn't get killed, but also he doesn't kill the dogs. So we have in part two, we think he kills the dog, but then that dog shows up at the end of the movie, and we know he doesn't kick the dog in part eight. So, <laughs> well, right. Jason, you know, according to Doctor Walking Dead, you know, it's not a serious horror movie, or I guess you know it's a serious horror movie when they'll kill the kid or the or the animal. Well, I think um, in part four there was danger of killing the kid. I think there were attempts made, but or, only because Tommy know. was getting in his way. I would suggest. Okay. Well, I don't think yeah, I don't I, think he goes after Tommy as a main um, like out of his own volition is my okay. is my memory of that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But but really the heart of the question is I mean when we when we're asking if this is a serious horror film we're talking about this franchise is it brutal is it dark? What's a better way that we can phrase that than just serious because do you know what I mean? I think we need to like identify well, first that I better. You, I, first i want to hear if you can defend it based on kyle's uh reasoning that you've always agreed with until now so i want to hear why i want to kind of hear how you feel about it based on on that okay well when when kyle says that okay every time thus far i mean he's been referring to individual films right which 
you know, I think that's something that we should at least point out here that in this particular franchise, it gets into lots of silliness eventually. <laughs> and, and so I think it's really difficult or unfair, maybe. I don't know. It's part of the franchise, though. So I guess you'd have to consider it as a whole franchise. I mean, you could say, but people are not going to like to say that part two is not a serious horror film since it's their favorite movie the franchise but they, he doesn't kill the dog in part two he doesn't kill the kids in four and six and he doesn't kill the dog in part eight mm-hmm. well those, none of, are none of those serious horror films then then kyle bishop who has a phd everybody <laughs> then but <laughs> by, by his by his reckoning of of a serious horror film then i guess by those standards you could say this is not a serious horror franchise and that bothers me that bothers me though no i'm just saying you asked me if by his measurement if it is now that bothers me too and i would boo somebody who says that but so i think there needs to be a a different (laughs) distinction made in order to account for movies like friday the 13th which i think are in fact um serious horror films but on a different level i think we got to have a different a rubric to measure with here. I don't know. I think even though that you're there cheering for the killer of these movies, they are afraid to cross that line. They're afraid to say, well, what if he kills this dog? People might not be cheering for him anymore. What if he kills these kids? People are going to turn against Jason. I think that sounds like a legitimate concern. And I wonder if that was the reason those th- those choices were made, you know? Possibly. Jason is prima donna. They would never make Cary Grant a killer, and they would never let Jason kill a kid or a dog. Yeah. Another <laughs> aspect of this is, like, because these are fun, quote-unquote, like, 80 slashers are a little bit more lighthearted. Like, for example, this isn't, like, that French slasher that I love, that inside the baby-stealing movie. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, somebody sent a comment on that recently, and we have talked about that film tons on this podcast. But, yeah, I mean, this isn't that kind of dark. Again, I think this is a tonal measurement here. I think tone has to do with it because this is more lighthearted and it has that 80s fun flair to it. Yeah. Actually, my might have been a little bit off topic, but I was going to say, you know, we've talked about our favorite kills, our favorite films. What would you say is, you know, because we're talking about Kyle's, you know, ranking as far as, you know, what, what makes a serious horror film. What would you say is the blackest, the darkest moment in any Friday the 13th film? Hmm. Oof, that's a good question. I mean, I know I mean, what mine would be. For me, it would be the ending of part two in, in his little hut there with, with his shrine to his mother. Wow. I think that's when it gets really close to like just the darkness. For me, that's what I would gravitate towards. I mean, I think your example of the double boat kill is pretty ruthless. Oh, yeah. That's, that's you know, another that's, good one. Mm-hmm. Both, of the, both of those are extremely ruthless. Mm-hmm. And the remake has a lot of really ruthless moments. The sleeping bag scene, I think, in in the remake is, as I think, maybe a reason I didn't like it. it. Seemed beyond Jason's mo. Like he's usually, I mean, he does weird things like hide under beds with arrows, but he's usually looking for efficiency. Although I guess that wasn't Jason; that was his mom. That was his mom, um, right? <laughs> but he's usually after efficiency, and so to tie someone, you know, over a campfire in their sleeping bag seems sadistic. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like part of Jason's uh, modus operandi. So, I mean that, but but to me, that one is definitely dark, dark, dark. Now, I think I know what you mean when you say dark. But if you were to say disturbing, like the most troubling scene for me is in the very first film, 
at the very end when you have that Betsy Palmer um, monologue, and then she starts talking in both voices. She, you know, she starts, um, <laughs> kill her mommy, kill her. Like, yeah. and, and, and she's clearly becoming unraveled right before your eyes. I think that's actually one of the, not only the most, one of the most disturbing moments, but I think it's one of the scariest moments in the whole franchise. And I'd also go back to the, the tent kill in part nine, uh, Jason goes to hell. I just think that is so not, not only is the actual violence on display, you know, in terms of the makeup effects far more than we've seen, you know, in previous installments of this franchise uh, up to this point, it's so much more graphic um, what you're seeing, but also, you know, graphic in terms of this, you know, the scene that's taking place up into that moment and how vulnerable, as William mentioned, uh, those characters are in that moment, and especially her. And like, it's kind of this climactic moment um, when it's the last time you think you're probably going to be split in half with a giant machete. Uh, it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying and just so gross and uh, and dark and disturbing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So the last thing I was going to say, I really was just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, I do think because of things like we've just discussed, you can't really argue that it's not a serious horror film. Although I would maybe say maybe they are doing these things to protect Jason because they don't they want him to still be likable and rootable, uh, yeah. and people root for him. But um, but you know, I think Kyle when he says that is saying, you know, it's a serious horror movie when this happens. My understanding is he's not said. It's not a serious horror movie if this doesn't happen. And so oh, I really that's a good just, point. And what's interesting is, you know, because if you look at a movie, just throwing this out there, uh, Humanoids from the Deep, Roger Corman, sort of the big salmon creatures that crawl out of out of the water and, and, and terrify that fishing village. The first two to die in that movie are a child and a dog. But I don't know that anybody would look at that and say, hey, that's a very serious horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that... I'm glad you brought that up, Doc, because I really think that we should try to delineate some kind of distinction where, because there are films that are really black and and horrific and awful, like just extremely unpleasant films like um, Willis. Serbian film. Well, I don't even talk about that stupid movie, but like, uh, okay. like, Mar- <laughs> like Willis talks about martyrs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like there's that film. And then, and then there's something like, you know, an 80s slasher film. And even though this is serious business here, what we're talking about, I still think there's a distinction between that. And so what do we call that? Do we call that hardcore horror? What labels should we put on them? Because, because I do think there needs to be some kind of way. I mean, you could call this a serious horror film, which, you know, I, I think it has to be because of the things we discussed. But the tone is more fun and lighthearted than something that's just absolutely dark. Like, Doc, you remember that movie Broken that you and I like fought over on the weekly horror yes. movie podcast? Yes, I do. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty that's a pretty dark and that's a dark movie, absolutely, and dismal film. And and yeah, I think there's, <clears throat> I guess I would call that hardcore horror. Yeah, and I then would agree. and then beyond that, that unmentionable film that you named a couple seconds ago, Doc, I would call that. <laughs> extreme horror or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, well, I, I agree. There we go. I agree. And I think that the, you look at the French in recent years, they're sort of uh, specializing in that extreme horror, you know, the, the sort of humorless, very sadistic, very dark, very violent films mm-hmm. uh, with martyrs, with inside, with frontiers, 
that's what they become known for, at least I don't know about now. I mean, we're going back a few years at this point, but for a while there anyway, you know, and, and, and even when you going back to the first movie, the guy who directed the remake of Hills Have Eyes. Um, oh, yeah. Aja. Mm-hmm. Aja. Yeah. His first movie, which what is the title of uh, that? High Tension. Ooh. High Tension. Yes. God getting late for me too mm-hmm. yeah high tension <laughs> you know uh, high tension is another movie that that's sort of in that realm and maybe is the one that kind of launched them in that direction i'd have to look back i'm not sure if there are any earlier than that you know i remember brotherhood of the wolf i don't remember that being quite as visceral but yeah that's what you're looking at. even a movie like irreversible that's a french movie mm-hmm. not necessarily horror but very brutal oh my goodness yes Okay, well, let's talk about the last two movies of the original franchise. These are the last two that I have these amazing Friday facts for. So uh, we'll, let's give those uh, for part seven now. Um, part seven was released Friday the 13th of May, 1988. It was back to number one at the box office, I think, thanks to part six in my estimation. Uh, it had a bigger budget of 2800000 There was a series record of three sex scenes. Two stalled cars. I'm shocked there were only three sex scenes because I feel like this whole movie is sex scenes. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, this is the only film in the series to feature characters other than Jason who possess any kind of supernatural powers. We know that. And then uh, the body count is 16 in this movie. And here are some of the weapons used. There are 11 of them. A tent spike, a sleeping bag, woo, an axe, <laughs> a Sith, Scythe. Scythe. I pronounced that wrong. Scythe, right? Only the Sith deal in absolutes, Josh. Yeah. (laughs) The the scythes, they're all over the place. A party horn, a knife, a machete, a long-handled machete, a power tree saw, Jason's bare hands, and telekinesis. Telekinesis? What is this? (laughs) What kind of movie is this? (laughs) We've got a couple of listener comments here that we can check out. There's one from Gray Imp that maybe, Dave, you could read. Absolutely. Okay, this is Gray Imp. He says, I actually love this one. I enjoyed the Carrie versus Jason thing, though the ending was silly. I've always felt this one was the worst victim of the MPAA. The kills could have been so much more graphic. Jason was great in this one. I didn't mind the, the Kane hotterisms you guys noted uh, at the end. Uh, Kane's stalking killing were enough to win favor for me. Uh, the victims slash teens in this one were also very fun, goofy, poorly acting, incredibly flamboyant. It's easy to notice the cheesiness, but I put this crew second, just behind the part four kids. People may not love part seven, but you got to admit it was a new concept added to the story, telekinesis, but at least they stuck to some of the original premise. You know, I was surprised how much I liked this on the rewatch. I still have all the problems with how dumb the teen characters are in the movie, mm-hmm. but I really like Carrie versus Jason. I mean, I, that stuff really appeals to me and I didn't think it did before. Right. And I, I, it did for I, me too. I had a blast watching yeah. it. This time. It definitely worked yeah. better for me than Freddie versus Jason. I have to say <laughs> when I, when I put together my top three list, which we'll get to, to in a minute, I almost consider this one a number three. I didn't ultimately make it, but for, that was huge for me because this used to be, in my mind, one of the worst. I was really surprised my reaction to it this time. Yeah, I yeah. actually had a lot of fun rewatching this one as well. That was one of my, I, I don't know, it was one of my pleasant surprises during this series as well. I, I'm with you, Wolfman. All right. This would actually be a good point in our episode to listen to a voicemail. 
If you want to call Horror Movie Podcast and leave us a voicemail, just call 801-382-8789. Horror Movie Podcast. This is Eric from Long Island, listening to your Friday the 13th uh, overview. I disagree with Jason on one thing. I like the recaps at the beginning of the movie. They only did it in 4 and 7 that I could think of off the top of my head. And it kind of psychs you up when you see those kind of best-of clips, especially in Part 4, and because it's supposedly the last one at the time, it works a little better. Uh, but to me, it kind of pumps me up. Okay, here we go for another round. And what's interesting about it, the one in Part 7 that narration that there's a legend around here, Uncle Killer, buried, but not dead. That is actually Crazy Ralph from the first two movies doing that narration. And I think that makes it uh, interesting and a little fun and kind of ties it back to the original films. And the other comment I have is about Jason Takes Manhattan. I think the reason Dr. Shock and people like myself are so disappointed that he didn't spend more time in Manhattan, to me it's less to do with the title than the fact that I'm old enough to remember at the time that any publicity for the film, whether it was the posters, uh, Jason showing up on Arsenio Hall, which is ridiculous, all, from the filmmakers to the movie studio, they really, really made you think that the bulk of the movie, if not the entire film, Jason was going to be in Manhattan. And so, yes, it was disappointing at first. Now I also agree that it doesn't matter now. You get over it, you watch it a few times, the stuff on the boat is great. And uh, it's also probably one of my least favorites of the series. I think they get worse from 7 on. That being said, that was it. I'm enjoying everything. Uh, as usual, you guys are fantastic and uh, loving the podcast. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. Later. Thanks so much for that voicemail. That was excellent. Well, on to Part A here. This had a theatrical release on Friday, July 28th, uh, 1989. This is the biggest budget so far, which is interesting because, you know, as Doc noted earlier in the episode, it was still much smaller than they needed. And honestly, it feels kind of low budget because there's something about the production value you get in a movie like Six being in the woods and everything that um, the boat feels like a choice that's made so that it can be inexpensive. But this was a $5 million budget, so it's quite a leap from uh, the previous films. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's, it's 1988, so we're getting, you know, the, the value of that dollar isn't as great as it was eight years earlier. Um, there are three survivors of this film including Toby the dog, which we mentioned previously. (laughs) This one's got a lot of illegal substances in it. There's cocaine, heroin, and crack. Uh, The last two making their series debut. And Pot, uh, which is a mainstay for this franchise, is curiously absent in Part 8. It was definitely the the high life of the 80s era, I guess. People were having their cocaine and heroin and crack, and Pot was not even a consideration at this point. This is the first film in the series to not feature a stalled car and this has a huge huge body count back to number five proportions with 21 kills in this movie and 17 weapons the most weapons used we have a spear gun three-pronged spear electric guitar which you know it's pretty amazing hot (laughs) sauna rock um, which is one of our listeners favorite kills actually i believe it was snowy otter her favorite was one of her favorites was the hot song rock <laughs> broken, broken mirror, which is one of my favorites of the whole series harpoon machete knife, electrical station, bad choice deck, antenna axe used heroin syringe, which is disgusting steam pipe, exploding car drum of toxic waste. One of the worst 
wrench Jason's bare arms, hands, and fists, uh, which, of course, he knocks Julius's head, right? Clean off <laughs> here in part eight. There's another one from Gray Imp. He, he had a lot of great feedback, I guess, that we, that we utilized here. Um, this is one quote from him that I thought I'd read. He said, just like all men must die in Game of Thrones, all franchises must die. Erich to say this, would anyone be too upset if there hadn't been another sequel after Manhattan? At least until the remake craze of recent times began. <laughs> I wish, I wish, I wish this franchise was untouched since then. And then more sequels were started after the 90s went away. Look at it now. I could have waited that long. And I kind of agree with them there as well. I know that our Jason, yeah. our many Jason X fans won't agree with that. And I'm a Jason X fan. I, I do enjoy it. But if you look at it, you got the first four films that, you know, we, we talk about the pre-code era in the 30s. The first four films were almost pre-MPAA before they started to clamp down. So you have the, the, the more graphic kills, you know, the, the, a little bit more. They're getting away with a little bit more. They didn't get away with everything, but they're getting away with a little bit more. Then you got five through eight that are like almost like the second phase because now the MPA is cracking down. They're not getting away with as much. You don't see as much blood on the screen, but you're still getting the kills. They're still plentiful, but you, but they're still part of that same series. They're still part of the same continuing series. You know, the, those eight films. Once you get past number eight and you get into nine and even with Jason X, which I did enjoy and Freddy versus Jason, it was turned over to somebody who just didn't have a didn't have a vested interest in the character, didn't care as much about that character as they cared about their own, you know, Freddy Krueger. So you really do, even with Jason X, as I said in the last episode, you do long for the first eight movies. You know, as you're watching these later films, yes, you're longing for, and it doesn't matter which. Well, I'm not going to go as far as five, but even eight, which I'm very lukewarm on, <laughs> I would still take that over. Those later ones, because it's at least part of that series. Yeah, I would definitely. I, I like them. Yeah, because obviously this strays from the heart of what the franchise is, what it's supposed to be, and I just think they miscalculated. I think they were worried about it being more of the same and getting redundant and repetitive and so forth. But honestly, I think that's where it goes south. Is after, when it changes. After eight films of more of the same. I don't think you should worry if the fans want more of the same. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a simple formula. Keep him in the woods and keep him just taking out teenagers one by one. That's that's what we want. Right. As we're on the topic of uh, part eight, this is a question that came up a few times from our listeners. Snowy Otter mentioned this. She said, hey, I was wondering if the wrap up, if in the wrap up episode you were going to address the theories running around that Jason can teleport. So this is a discussion topic I thought we could very briefly touch on. What do you there's guys a, think of There's a good point there because that Jason, <laughs> he's chasing somebody. Next thing you know, he's ahead of them. I mean, that happens <laughs> a lot in this movie. He pulls a cop into a back alley, and as soon as they jump in the car, he's now 20 feet down the alley looking at him. <laughs> Either he's got a twin or he can teleport. That's a twin. <laughs> Here's a comment. I don't. I failed to credit this person, so I'm sorry. I wrote down your comment, but I didn't keep your name with it. But it's a good comment. It's along those lines. It said, "Did anyone notice Jason's uncanny ability to teleport in Part Eight? This has always bugged me a little. Either it was bad filmmaking or just too much power vested in supernatural Jason. I know we did this in some of the other movies, but here it was just 
out of control. And yeah, I yeah. Think Doc, Doc said it. It's totally out of control. Well, yeah. let me actually give a real life answer to some of this. This might be of value to people, maybe. My cousin is a police officer. He has been for many years now. And one time he told me something really surprising. He said that he would rather face off with somebody who had a gun than somebody who had a knife. And I'm like, really? I'm like, guns seem so much more lethal. And he's like, yeah. He's like, if you're standing, and he showed me this, he said, if you're standing across the room and you're like 20 feet from me, he said, a guy with a knife can actually get to you and stab you before you can draw your gun. He's like, this has been documented. There have been many instances of this. And that's one of the first things they teach you in the police academy, according to my cousin, is that, um, you know, people with knives. Anyway, I think the point of all this is that I'm bringing this up is when you are being pursued by a killer, especially in a life or death situation, especially when you're being pursued by someone who wants to take you out it probably would be, it would feel uncanny. It would seem like they're teleporting or like you can't escape them because the threat is there. So I, I, okay. I don't really think it's significant. I know what you're saying, Jay, but in part eight, there's a scene where the caretaker, the teacher, is running from Jason looking over his shoulder because Jason is walking behind him. He goes into a warehouse. Next thing you know, he's thrown out of the second floor window by Jason, who we were to assume moments ago was behind him, was suddenly on the second floor and able to toss him out of a window. Mm -hmm. I don't think that applies to somebody who can move because they don't have a gun. Yeah, I mean, just like the continuity in this series, I'm not saying that it makes sense at all. I'm just saying that I don't, I choose not to believe that Jason can teleport. Oh, no. Because I think that's dumb. I think think it was just, this is a surprise, and it just didn't make any sense. It was just something the filmmakers were doing. I don't think he can teleport either, to be honest with you. Exactly. I just just think they said, oh, this will will be cool, and people are still scratching their head going, huh? Yeah, but in horror, it's like, uh, where is the monster? The monster's behind you. I mean, that's just what happens. The, The monster has the ability to always be where you don't want it to be. Yeah. That's true. Horror Movie Podcast. It's Eric from Long Island again with a couple more nitpicks about Jason Takes Manhattan. One is you don't have to be from New York. All you have to do is see a Woody Allen movie to understand when something was shot in Canada and not in New York. And that's another big problem I have with the Manhattan scenes is none of it feels like New York except for the one scene they obviously did shoot there, which was in Times Square. Uh, None of those back alleyways, the rooftops, nothing about that feels like New York. That's a nitpick. I can suspend my disbelief long enough for that. I understand that's more of a production cost situation. But something that really drives me nuts, besides the worst ending ever, as you guys did a great job pointing out, so I'm not going to go into that, something that's almost as bad as the toxic waste turning him back to a child, the Jensen Deggett character, in her flashback, when Jason pulls her under the water, they are both about the same age. They're both obviously little children. Let's say they're 8, 10 years old, a couple years apart at most. In the poor continuity of the Friday the 13th series, which has never been the series' strong point, if you were saying that Part 7 took place somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, and if she's the same age as Jason, shouldn't she be in her 40s, maybe even 50s at that point, depending on the timeline? That is something that drove me nuts watching it the first time and every time since. Almost as bad as the awful ending of the toxic waste in the sewer, which, by the way, 
New York does not have sewer systems which pour tons of toxic waste down them uh, on a regular schedule. I'm sure we don't even have toxic waste. I can chalk that up again to suspend my disbelief. Maybe this is some kind of Tromaville universe where you just let something like that happen. It is a horror movie. It's the eighth one. Who cares? But the Jensen thing is the, the continuity in that character. I mean, she should be as old as Jason, and she's not. And that is just as annoying to me as the ending. Love the show. Keep it up. Thank you for that voicemail. Excellent. Once again. Well, speaking of being where you don't want to be, let's talk about Jason Goes to Hell. <laughs> Uh, Jason X and Freddy versus Jason. Well done. Uh, really quickly. I'm out of Friday facts. I know the audience is probably really sad about that. We have a couple of listener comments that I thought we could check out. Jay, you've got one from David and mm-hmm. I've got one here from Dino. Should we read those? Yeah. So David writes first, it's probably got the worst title and he's referring to Jason goes to hell. It's probably got the worst title out of the whole series. Aside from the fact that we've already had a final movie in the franchise at this point and once again the finality suggested by the title here is bogus it also gives away the ending of the movie you know you suck when the title of your movie is in itself a spoiler also (laughs) it's even more misleading than jason takes manhattan at least we actually see jason in manhattan (laughs) for a short time in that film Right. I like that it's short and fast-paced and shows us a lot more gross-out gore than the last few entries, but it just seems so miscalculated. Why does Jason look more like a burn victim than a rotting corpse at the beginning? Well, not just that. Why is there all of a sudden this mythology, by a Voorhees he was born and only by a Voorhees can he die? I mean, all this nonsensical stupidity. I I despise that, yes. That that came up in, in this movie that people just don't care about. That's right. And David concludes with, What division of the police sets up sting operations to catch roaming supernatural zombie killers? Forget goes to hell. This movie should be called Jason, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. David. Nice. And that opening sequence, you know, some people think, oh, it's, it's kind of cool, but if you think about it, there's a scene where a light bulb goes out. And that's what sort of starts this woman off on her trek where she runs into Jason. Okay? We find out the whole thing was arranged to lure Jason into this field. So we're, are we expected to believe that that light bulb going out was planned? They took it to that yeah. level? Mm, interesting yeah (laughs) i I like it it's stupid but that's to me the only redeeming part of the movie but it ends as soon as jason's on screen because he's so terrible looking Mm -hmm. um here's another jason goes to hell comment from dino jason goes to hell is a difficult film to discuss in a constructive manner (laughs) right as much as it pains me to say being the friday the 13th fanboy crybaby that i am it really is not a good movie it's not so bad it's good not a guilty pleasure Not, I see what they were going for there, but it just fell short. It's none of those. It's just bad. (laughs) Yes. It is bad. I agree with you, Dino. That's awesome. But I respect a fan who can say that. I mean, sometimes when you have a team that always loses, like a sports team, you got to admit, we out, they lose. So. Right. Yeah, it happens. I failed to grab any quotes from Jason X somehow, and I really apologize to Juan because... I know you probably have a lot of great ones in the comments yeah. being that it, you love the movie so much. So I, I'm sorry for that. But, but let's, can I just compliment you, though, Wolfman, for mm-hmm. the comments that you have collected for this episode? That's really tremendous. Oh, yeah. If people Absolutely. noticed on the website, 
I mean, we've had between what, like 150 and 200 comments for each of these Friday the 13th <laughs> episodes, which is amazing. And in fact, as we're recording this here very, very late on a Wednesday night, I'm noticing that we still have comments rolling in on the previous episode. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just you guys are tremendous and we're so grateful for your feedback. Thank you very yeah. much. So I yeah. just have a quick question for you guys for Jason X. Is it good, bad, or so bad it's good? So bad it's good. I don't know. I just have fun with it. And I don't know if I look at it, it's so bad it's good. I guess in a way it is, yes. Putting Jason in space, having, having um, you, you know, the fact that when he's, when he's sort of uh, revitalized by those wires, not just his body, but his mask is revitalized at the same time. I mean, yeah, all this goofy stuff. That I think that was was purposeful. I think that was put in there, you know, for a reason. So not to to try to make it serious, just sort of make it, you know, a, a little more comedic. Um, so I just enjoy it. I don't know if I'd say it's so bad it's good. I I do know that it's not a great movie. I'm not going to sit here and say, wow, it's a classic or anything, but it's a fun movie. Mm-hmm. I can't decide. I. You like it. it so bad. No, I really dislike it. Um, no, you like I'm, watching I'm right it. Right on the borderline. I'm right on the borderline of saying that it's so bad it's good. But ultimately, I'm gonna have to go with bad. Oh, no, it's so bad it's good. You're crazy. It's so bad it's good. You would watch it if somebody, if your friends were getting together, Josh, on Friday only, night. Only in that case, though. Yeah, well, there's, there's uh, never going to be a case I'll put it in by myself ever again for the rest of my life. That's what I'm saying, though. Like when your <laughs> friends get together to make fun of a movie, you do that with so bad it's good movies. And if your friends are doing it this Friday, you would do it and you would have a good time. Just saying. Well, we'll see. <laughs> How will we see? <laughs> if it ever comes up, I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's talk about Freddy versus Jason really quick. Scott Waller, it was one of his favorite movies. In fact, was it his number one movie? May have been his number one movie. Mm. Um, he left us 10 re- – oh, no, that was not Scott Waller. I apologize. This is Shannon. And Shannon said – he gave us 10 reasons why this movie is so great, Freddy vs. Jason. Awesome. Number one, being a comic book geek, a versus story between anyone you've never seen before is what comics are all about. And being a horror fan, this was a first. And we waited forever, never expecting to see it. And, of course, everyone's expectations can never live up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> Two, there's actually an interesting and original plot, more than any other entry in either franchise. They stayed true to both mythos while combining them. Any comments on that? I don't know. I don't think I don't think J- Jason behaved a little on Jason, like especially that first time when he was in the house where he snuck in, killed somebody in the bed, and then left. Yeah, mm. that was a little unJason like, but okay. Number three, one of Jason's highest kill counts. Number four, Freddy became a serious evil bleep again. Five, <laughs> Jason became the fan fra- favorite, but staying the unstoppable killing machine. Isn't that what everyone wants? Six, Jason on fire. <laughs> Seven, after the castrating of all the violence of previous films, this was a bloody river gore fest. Yeah, definitely. Eight, the acting and production put the other movies in both franchises to shame. Nine, the soundtrack was a metalhead's dream. And ten, Jason wins. Does he win or is there a wink at the end that says he doesn't win? He wins. 
it really depends on who you, I think didn't Willis respond that he didn't believe Jason won? Willis said that it didn't matter because as soon as the movie's <laughs> over, they're both dead anyway. They'll just get back up. That's what Willis said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Jay, do you want to you read Scott Waller's comment there? Absolutely. He says, I'm watching Freddy vs. Jason right now, and it's a fine monster movie. I'm a mashup kind of person. I like all my action figures all mixed together because it'll bring all kinds of new stories and adventures. <laughs> I, I gotta respect that and I respect Scott for saying that because he, he probably is responding to my comment about not blending my action figures <laughs> let's find out okay let's and he out. says like Jake the dog in 1970s Batgirl and Captain America and some leopard spot head dude from Babylon 5 and, <laughs> <laughs> and MLP Applejack and the creature from the Black Lagoon would be quite an adventure I also like to swirl all the food on my plate together, so Freddy versus Jason is fine. I wonder if reading this last paragraph made Jay of the Dead have to breathe into a paper bag with his head down between his knees. Sorry, bro. Didn't do it on purpose. That's hilarious. I love that. Touche, Scott. Touche. And finally, guys, any thoughts on the remake that we haven't already talked about? I'll save that no. for a few moments here when we do a okay. little list naming. Okay, okay. Let's do a little list naming then. Let's have the let's do the host top three films. Then we'll hear the listeners' top three films as uh, based on the correlation of all of the entries that were given to us. And then we will take from those entries and draw for two, count them two, Jason Voorhees reaction figures. Guys. <laughs> That's right. good. Let's do our number three films, maybe. We'll go around and each give them. Who do you want to go first, Jay? Okay, let's hear from Dr. Shock. All right. Um, my number three film is actually one that um, a lot of people, I think, would put at number one, and it's Friday the 13th Part 2. I do like the bagged Jason, if you will. I think it's got some of the darkest moments in the series, as I, I just said previously. It's got the best final girl, um, and it really did... And it was the first appearance of Jason Voorhees as a killer taking out the dream sequence at the end of, of the first movie. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely part two. Hmm. All right. I'll just go next here. For me, my number three movie of the whole series is uh, Friday the 13th from 2009. I'm talking about the remake. It was an eight out of ten. It's a buy for me. Now, if people are looking at my ratings, which I'm sure you're not, but that that number, the 8 out of 10, actually ties with part 2 and part 4 and part 6. So yeah, my third spot could have been a four-way tie, but I'm not going to do that because that's kind of copping out or something. But I'm picking the remake because I was very pleased with the fact that they brought the franchise back to reality. In fact, we, as we discussed... Jason is not even really a supernatural character. He is just a crazed, mighty killer in the woods. And I love it that they got back to their roots on that. Um, and, and I also, Derek Mears is my favorite Jason. It's ferocious. I actually felt scared watching this film, which is something I hadn't felt in the Friday the 13th franchise in how many years, you guys? So that was really awesome to me, too. And then also, I gotta throw it out there, even though I'm ashamed to. I really like, uh, what is it, Julianne Gill 
I think she's my favorite gal <laughs> in all of the Friday the 13th movies. So that's my number three. What do you say, Wolfman? She could win a contest. My number three is not one of my highest rated movies. I actually have a couple that rate higher than this that do not make my list. Um, so mine are not necessarily in the order of my highest ranking, but what I would actually want to watch. So a lot of my number ratings were based on the quality of film that I thought they were. This is not the best. I realize this, but it's one I'm going <laughs> to pop in. Okay. Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan is my number three. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, you've expressed you've expressed the sentimental yeah. feelings you have for the movie. So, yeah, it's understandable. I figured that and might also, make the list. Also, you know, I changed two of my ratings, guys. I want to change them. Um, taking the whole franchise into account after we rewatched all the movies, I'm going to I'm going to bump uh part 2 up by 0. 0.5 to a 6.5 from a 6. Okay. And I'm going to bump part 3 down from a 6 to a 5. Wow. <laughs> As are, well. Are you yeah. serious? Uh, yep. We might have to have more scoldings for Wolfman Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I understand. Well, I don't really understand, but uh that's fine. That's fine with me. <laughs> if you want to be that way. <laughs> so what are our number 2s? Doc. All right. This one I really struggled with because uh, I go back and forth as to which one is my favorite and which one um, would be number two. But I'm just going to settle. I'm going to have to say number two for me is um, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. You know, I mean, there are times when I think of it as my favorite of the of the franchise. Yes. Um, but but this one, you know, it, it's it's a very strong number two. Uh, no, that didn't come out right. It's a very strong second place. Um, <laughs> phrasing, phrasing. Yeah, fr- phrasing is <laughs> phrasing is it matters. It really does. Um, it's it's a strong second place finish. So many elements of it work. The, the kids are the are the best in the series. Corey Feldman delivers a great performance. Some of the kills are are, are tremendous in this one. And uh, again, it's it's a dark movie. It takes it in very dark places. So it does end it. I mean, it, it does bring these first four movies to, I guess, what would be their natural conclusion. So, yeah, for me, part four or, or Friday the 13th, the final chapter is a very strong second place finish. Well done. OK, I knew that was going to be in your list. In fact, I thought that was going to be your number one. I've heard you praise yeah. it so often. Oh, yeah. Yes. OK, well, for me, my number two has to be Friday the 13th Part 3, which, you know, it was funny because as we were reviewing this, especially Josh here, I mean, he pointed out some of the weaknesses to it, and I get that, but I, it is kind of special to me for some of the reasons that everybody else loves it, which is you got the, the donning of the mask, which is really exciting to me. I love that, but I'll be perfectly honest, I mean, Two and three are really kind of similar to me, but I I like three more. And I didn't say this in the episode, and this is just kind of a a very subjective and personal reason. But I once dated a gal who would watch horror movies with me every once in a while. And we'd go to this video store, and this is back when they had video stores (laughs) in the late 90s. And uh, I'd let her pick, you know, because I'm just such a chivalrous (laughs) gentleman. Anyway, and she just, we wanted to get a Jason movie, and she randomly picked this one. And I just, that was one of the most fun times I ever had watching one of these movies. And so it'll always be sentimental for that reason. And so I can't, I can't give you any other real legitimate reason why I love it so much, but that is one reason. So it's an 8.5 to me and I say buy it. 
Yes, it is. Wow. <laughs> and you gave it okay. a five. Shame. He just dropped it even another point. I dropped it a point. <laughs> That's yeah, painful. Um, well, <laughs> I'm sorry. My number two is uh, Jason Loves. I just think it's a blast. And uh, I, I wish that it was a little gorier. I don't like the paintball scene. But other than that, I think it's just a super fun, fun movie. So Jason Loves part six. Okay, Doc, what's your number one Friday the 13th film? Number one for me is Friday the 13th from 1980. Um, <laughs> just every time I watch it, it's just, it's it's where it got, it's where it started. I mean, this is, you're looking at what became the birth of the horror franchises and really what kicked off 80 slashers, you know. Are you trying as, to make as, me feel bad? No, no. <laughs> I mean, as strong as Halloween is, and Halloween did is, is what inspired Friday the 13th. It was that movie that showed everyone, hey, you can you can turn these things into franchise. You can make series out of them, and you can get loyal fans who you'll have for life. And this one's more. This one has a little bit of sentimental value too. You go back to the days of cable, and and that it played all the time, and and so. From, it's always just going to be my favorite. It, it's going to be the, the first one, the one that started it all. Attaboy, Doc, because you know what? My number one is the same. Friday the 13th from 1980. And even though this does not have actual Jason Voorhees in it killing people, I think it's the best film of the franchise. And I've said it a million times, so I won't I won't belabor it further, but it has the best motivation in all the series. And I just love it. An 8.5 out of 10. I say buy it. Josh, what's your number one? The final chapter. This is the Jason Voorhees I wanted to see. This is the one I imagined in my head as a child when I wasn't watching the films. This is the beginning of uh, my favorite section of the films uh, four, six, seven, and eight, I guess. And um, yeah, it's, it's just. Uh, it's just the best in my opinion. So I, again, I, I know I'm an outsider to this franchise. I'm a, I'm a casual fan. Having said that, I think I maybe have seen the movie now as much as the hardcore fans mm-hmm. <laughs> right. because I've, I've seen these movies now so many times, but yeah, I just think this one is exceptional and the, the cast and, and the, the fact that I care at all about these kids makes it a lot scarier and yeah, just it's great overall. And and now that we've thrown this out there, let's just say what movie are you happy you'll never have to watch again in the series? And let's just let's just all say Jason Goes to Hell is going to be number one. What would be number two? Yeah, the bottom three real quick. My worst is Jason Goes to Hell. My second worst is part five. My third worst, and I'm sorry, Shannon, is Freddy versus Jason. What do you guys say your bottom three? Uh, I'll say I'll go. I'll go Jason X and Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. I would probably go with part five and I guess I'd have to go with, with um, Freddy versus Jason two. I mean, it's, it's close, but um, there's there a Freddy versus some... Jason two. I, I was going to no, do no, that. No, 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 no. <laughs> but Freddy I, versus I, Jason also, I restrained myself. Um, yeah, no, Freddy versus Jason also. Um, it's, you know, the, part eight has parts. There are things about it that bother me. But every time I see it, I do feel a little bit – I do enjoy it a little bit more. And um, uh, the same thing with this last viewing. So, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say just from looking at my ratings, it would have to be Freddy versus Jason. So, guys, I tallied up all of the listeners' votes for their favorite top three films. 
honestly, the top two, it was a runaway. Actually, really, the top three, nothing really came close to those three. They got the vast majority of the votes. Um, there were only two films that got zero votes, and those were parts <laughs> five and Jason Goes to Hell. Nobody had those in their top three. Yes. Uh, the, way I wa- the way I weighted these was um, I gave preference to the your number one pick, and so I just kind of reversed the numbers there, basically. Your number one pick got three points. Your number two pick got two points. Your number three pick got one point, and that's how I uh, tallied up all the numbers there. Correct. And basically, so here, here are the audiences, our listeners, top three films of the franchise. They're all films we've talked about before. Spoiler alert. Number three, Friday the 13th, 1980. Number two, Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. And number one, Friday the 13th, Part Two. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Those are those those are mine in reverse order. <laughs> <laughs> and even though only one of those made my list, I wouldn't even think to argue with that. That's obviously a very solid list. And yeah, um, everybody agreed, really. I mean, there were obviously there were there were a couple votes. Let's see. There were uh, three votes for part eight, <laughs> along with me. Uh, two votes for Jason X. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Two votes for Freddy versus Jason. But yeah, I mean, it was a runaway. It was a landslide. Who let Willis vote twice? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I think Willis. Shannon was in there as well. But mm-hmm. right, that's true. Shannon's a big fan of that one. Too. And actually, you know, on the on the boards, there are a lot of fans out there for Jason X. A lot for Freddy versus Jason. Um, so you know, we're I think we're a little outside the popular opinion on those two films. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yeah. nobody, nobody liked Jason Goes to Hell. So no. Yeah, that movie sucks. Okay. Jason can go to hell in that one. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> yes. So should we do the drawing for these two reaction figures? Yeah, I actually think we go. have a few drawings left, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Okay, so here we go. This first drawing here, this is for the Jason Voorhees reaction figure and a small poster. Okay? Which, again, don't get too excited about this small poster. But... This goes to Levi Olson, the unknown murderer from Flagstaff, nice. Arizona. There you go. So, All right. Yes. Well done. Congratulations, Levi. Just um, and in fact, Levi was so confident that he was going to win, or hopeful at least. He already included his address, so I'll just get that <laughs> sent out to you, buddy. Thank you. No, Le- Levi's cool. He just trusted me with his information, so I appreciate that. And I will not read it on the podcast. Okay. I did see you put it on. I did see you put it on Twitter. But other than that, I yes. think you'll hold on to that. I tweeted out. That's right. And then this next one is for the Jason Voorhees action figure as well, but no small poster this time. Sorry. And this goes to <laughs> Joe Brunette from Savannah, Georgia. That's hilarious. Nice. Yeah, I, I think he was pretty excited about this. So, so Joe, uh, make sure you email me your address at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com <laughs> congratulations very cool joe tweeted me a picture of him uh watching friday the 13th part two on his laptop um and drinking from a jason Voorhees cup and using a jason Voorhees coaster <laughs> wow <laughs> that was kind of funny that's really cool and that's hardcore so let's move into our final discussion topic, the future of the franchise. And uh, I think there's a great question here from David. Okay, here it is. This comes from David. He says, 
Recently, I've been thinking about where I'd like this franchise to go next. It's gone past the point where I felt like they should just stop making them now, and recently it feels a bit like these 80s franchises are receiving retroactive acclaim. It'd be the perfect time to take the franchise back to its slightly more restrained, grainy roots. It might seem like an odd choice, but I'd love to see what someone like Ty West would do with a Friday the 13th movie. I even think Rob Zombie would do a much better job of a reboot of this franchise than he did with Halloween. In fact, you know he's speaking our language right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like it. <laughs> In fact, I'd love to see them do something really inventive, like an anthology film full of Jason's stories with different directors for each segment. Of course, the aforementioned West and Zombie could be involved, but also guys like Scott Derrickson and Eli Roth. I'm not a fan of Roth, but even I have to admit that a super gory Friday the 13th short by him would probably be great. That probably so. Yeah. Now, see, yeah, I agree. I would like to see something a little bit outside the box. Like, um, I will say he hasn't proven himself in horror yet. He was supposed to do the Suspiria remake, which I don't think that's going to happen. But I'd like to see a David Gordon Green Friday the 13th wow. film. That would be amazing. That would be really interesting. Yeah, that would calling be cool. it right here. So if anybody with any power out there can make that happen, please do. The other yeah. thing, in all seriousness, I would be willing to let Neil Marshall give it a whirl because I like. He's an, interesting, yeah. he's an interesting director. He's every movie he's made has been, even if there's, if it's not great, it's you know it, it's watchable. I mean, it's it's engaging. Mm-hmm. And like David was saying, I mean. The, the grittiness would be good to bring that back, and I think Neil yeah. Marshall does fine with that. I mean, think of Dog Soldiers or The Descent. Like, if you had a Friday the 13th movie that had the sensibility or the look of Dog Soldiers, you know, I'd be in for that. Or even... Absolutely. And I'm not even opposed. I'm actually quite intrigued by the possibility of having a found footage Friday the 13th. I know that makes most of the people out there mad. But I like found footage, and I think it would be fun. I think it could really work in this franchise. Picture it. They go to camp. Somebody's filming the experience. Blah, blah, blah. It's so easy. Yeah, I oh, think that was nowadays, actually my choice. Yeah, it would make sense. It would even make sense to take it in that direction because with, with, with cell phones and everything, people are always recording or taking pictures or, mm-hmm. you know, it would make sense to take it in that direction. Totally. Although I don't yeah. know. Would you, would you do the whole I don't have a signal here thing? You know, because you never had to worry about that in the 80s. Never once did you have a kid say, I can't find a signal. Right. You know, because I'm in the middle of the woods. But have you noticed lately, there's a new trend in horror films, and I love it that these horror directors, writer directors are picking up on this. They're they're starting to kind of balk against that. And they'll, they'll still be able to use their signal, but they'll come up with a different reason. Why? Or they'll even yeah. try to have them call in the authorities, and it just doesn't matter. <laughs> like I love right. that. That really makes yeah. Me happy. I, well, I think it got to the point where they're just like, how can we just how can we do this? There's no signaling. Where there's signals everywhere anymore, you know. And, and yes, it's the woods, but it's New York, or it's you know, it's a it's <laughs> it's a populous area. I mean, come on, we should be able to get some sort of a signal. So yeah, I think that's gotten to the point now, especially where it doesn't make sense to. You, this time, this day and age, it doesn't make sense to have that I can't get a signal, especially <laughs> when you got four people who can't get a signal because that's, that's odds are you've got at least two, three different uh, carriers in there. 
<laughs> right. And none of them can get a signal. That's right. It's ridiculous, Doc. You're right yeah. about that, buddy. I like the found footage thing a lot. That would be my first choice. I think I like their, I like David's suggestions. Um, I think those director choices are probably a little pie in the sky in terms of there's no way those guys are going to do a Friday the 13th anthology film. Maybe Eli Roth would. I don't think you're going to get Rob Zombie or Scott Derrickson or those guys to take part in something like this. But I think if you look at some of the directors who are doing VHS and ABCs of horror, I bet you could get a lot of those guys to come in and make a really great anthology film. I don't know if that's exactly what I'm interested in uh, per se, but it could be interesting. Hey, I mean, if you ask me, honestly, this remake from 2009, it was my number three. I mean, Marcus Nispel, I mean, he did fine with that. Bring back the same crew, bring back Derek Mears. Let's do it again. I'm ready for number two. Yeah, make the kids a little more interesting on the second on the second one. But yeah, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we still need to do one more prize giveaway and tell yeah, about so the movies we, we picked. Yeah. So what we're going to do here is we're each going to pick the movie that we want to review. And then uh, the people who suggested those films will be entered into the drawing for this T-shirt for the Friday the 13th Council T-shirt. Let's just go around and, and say the movies we want to do. Why don't you go first, Dave? Okay, the one I picked is uh, Murder Party, which is suggested by uh, Christian, what was it, Christian B? B, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Christian B, yeah, I went, with, uh, I went with Murder Party. There were a lot of great suggestions. I mean, there really were a lot of different ones. Um, that was just the one that uh, just caught my eye. And I'm excited about that. I'm going to try to watch that too, Doc, for that particular episode and review it with you because... Um, is it is it pronounced Jeremy Saulnier? Is that how you yes. say it? Um, the yes, writer-director of that film is also the writer-director of Blue Ruin, which was my oh. favorite film. And I'm talking about just of all releases from 2013. That was my number one film. 2014. Oh, yeah, 2014. Nice. And so um, I'm super excited about that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That's a great pick. So. And I've, I've seen Murder Party, so I can review it with you guys as well. Um, in fact, I just talked about it this week on Movie Streamcast, however, very briefly, because we were uh, reviewing Blue Ruin, and so I, I mentioned it. But um, yeah, it's a great pick. I don't go in expecting Blue Ruin. It's, it couldn't be more different. It's okay, like the good opposite end of the spectrum. It's a, it's a satirical horror comedy. So. Okay. Oh, man. Why do they make it a Sorry. comedy? You know, the, these guys grew up making splatter films together and just goofing around, running around their neighborhood with blood and gore and, and laughing. And that's the kind of movie this is. You know? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Which movie did you pick, Josh? So I first was looking at Alucarda um, and and Dave was also looking at it. So we decided we'd both review it. And then you said you'd, you'd hop on that one, too. So I thought, oh, yeah, since we did, since we didn't have a fourth host, that's kind of cool. We can all review Alucarda and then we'll all do an additional movie as well. So, man, I had a, such a hard time picking my other movie. Yeah. Um, I was looking I was looking at Gray Imp's recommendation of The Long Weekend. That was really interesting to me. Let's see. What were the other one? Devil's Reign, uh, which was recommended yeah. by Levi. Was on my list. The um, children shouldn't play with dead things, and yeah, mm-hmm. there were a lot of good ones. And it's just unfortunately some of them I've seen before. I was trying to go. Obviously, we're going with something we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I decided on Martin. Um, I it's a George Romero film that I have never seen, and so uh, yeah, so Dino will be entered into the drawing for Martin, and uh, Juan will be entered into the drawing for 
Alucarda. And again, I should also mention Alucarda is a movie that Chris Access has been recommending to me for over a year. Mm-hmm. So I do yeah. appreciate Juan's recommendation, but I should also give Chris Access uh, some credit for being the reason that I knew what that movie was. And I've heard of it before, and I'm pretty sure it was from Chris Access. I'm pretty sure he, he recommended it to me yeah. as well. He loves that movie. That's right. And the film, and I had trouble narrowing it down as well. Like, um, I've actually been really curious about Wormwood Road of the Dead, which Jan Gell's twin, Tim J, recommended. And by the way, Tim J, I'll probably get to that one <clears throat> sooner rather than later. But the one that I picked for this particular episode is one by Tony Is on Fire. It was his recommendation. And it's uh, Calvier or The Ordeal from 2004. And so I'm super excited about that, actually. And so I and in fact, we had a lot of great submissions. Thank you guys so much yes. for doing that. That's going to make a really fun episode. We're going to bring this out to you within the next. I mean, this will be really soon. So I can't th- give honestly, you the we're, we're going to get to a lot of these recommendations. Some of them we've already talked about. So we did, we avoided those. But like Allison, Allison mentioned the hitcher. And I thought it would be really fun to do like a roadside assistance goes wrong episode and and cover the hitcher and some movies like because there's so many horror movies where bad things happen when your car breaks down on the side of the road, you know. Yeah, and and I agree, and I want to, and I know I realize that we've had listeners kind of come to the podcast like a little bit later, you know, so they haven't heard all of the past episodes, but like. I'm a big fan of The Collector and The Collection, Latasha. Those are great films, which we've um, discussed a little bit before. Also, um, Dead Girl, super love that. And, of course, Trick or Treat is like a classic by now. And yeah. and also, um, David in Omaha, he, he brought up Inside, which is that French horror flick that I love so much. And we and he he also brought it up because it's a siege narrative as well. And, and, yeah, I mean, David, I've... I've been begging people on this podcast to check that out if they haven't yet. I mean, I've mentioned it ad nauseum, so that's a great flick. It's a 10. And just so you know, David there um, and with Shannon with The Woman, I'm actually, both of those are going to be on my future episodes of Wolfman's Got Nards. Normally I wouldn't spoil that, but I I did want to let you guys know the reason uh, those didn't get picked by me is because I'm already planning on doing them for Wolfman's Got Nards in the future. Same goes for David uh, from the UK, his recommendation of uh, a few Japanese films that are going to be on our Japanese ghost stories of the 60s and 70s themed episode at some point. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. It yeah. was difficult, but I think we've had some good choices here. I'm looking forward to watching these movies. Yes, yeah, so we got Alucarda, recommended by Juan. Uh, Calvere from 2004, recommended by Tony's On Fire. Martin, recommended by Dino. And Murder Party by Christian B. And so... We put those in the proverbial hat <laughs> and we're going to draw out which one, which one. And it is Tony is on fire from Buffalo, New York. Oh, <laughs> So congratulations. And by the way, Tony is on fire in his email for the submission. He actually sent a photograph of his Friday the 13th tattoo that he has on his leg. And it's awesome. I'm going to put it in the show notes for this episode. Okay, so Tony, uh, let me know what size shirt you would like and what color you would like. Again, the sizes range from a small to a triple extra large. And the colors are red, gray, white, and sky blue. And again, I think the sky blue is the way to go, man. It looks like a counselor t-shirt. So Sweet, sweet. That would be my choice. 
and Josh, you can just go ahead and send me one of those too if you want. And um, um, <laughs> <laughs> and also one more thing on Tony's email here when he sent this in, Tony from Buffalo, New York. He said that he has a, a horror movie podcast sharing group on Facebook called Horror Podcast Central, which is super awesome. So uh, <laughs> that's cool. I just want to throw that out there. We finally have a Facebook page now for this show. So cool. yeah, please go on there and catch up with us. Thank you. All right. Well, that has been an epic franchise overview. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it because, in fact, the listeners contributed most of the content for this episode. With So I really enjoyed it personally. And I want to thank Wolfman Josh for all he did to gather and assemble all that you've done for this episode, Josh, and for all the artwork through this whole franchise. That was all Wolfman Josh. So we got to give him props, everybody. He is our MVP for this franchise overview. Definitely. And series review. So I think that just about wraps up episode 47 of Horror Movie Podcast. But before you tune out, at the very end of this credits, we have two little surprises for you, Josh. Do you want to tell what we're going to put from you at the end? Sure. So um, David from the UK was a little upset with us that we didn't have uh, the episode posted on time last week. And he said, your punishment should be that you have to review Saturday the 14th. And so I did watch Saturday the 14th and I'm going to do a mini review of that after the end of the show, as well as um, a mini review of the Crystal Lake Memories documentary. Uh, Those will be pretty short, but I, I will do both of those. And it should be fun. And and we have an epic voicemail from TJ. He sent us in this awesome voicemail about his feelings on the Friday the 13th franchise. And I thought, you know, since this has been a listener-driven episode, it would be appropriate to send you off with TJ's thoughts because they're very good. Okay. They're long, right? Yeah, he he sent us a a doozy of a voicemail. So that's really cool. So we appreciate it, TJ. So everybody, make sure you stick around here after our plugs for those final reviews. But just want to go around to my buddies here and see if you have any plugs for the listeners that they should check out. Well, for me, it's just the same. You know, DVDinfatuation.com. Um, on Twitter, at DVD Infatuation, all one word, no dashes, no underscores. Uh, and um, on Land of the Creeps, uh, check that out at landofthecreeps.blogspot.com. I'm on Twitter, at Icarus Arts, which is the name of my production company. Um, I'm mostly just tweeting movie-related content uh, most of the time. And um, I also have another podcast called Movie Streamcast that I do every week. I've recently done a few different horror movies like uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Jay here and I did Silent House. We did The Sweet Blood of Jesus, the Spike Lee film. Um, and this week we did Blue Ruin from the director of Murder Party. Not a horror other film, than, but a great film. Yeah. Yes. And other than that, I'm occasionally on Movie Podcast Weekly and the Sci Fi Podcast, which I produce as well. Yeah, they should definitely listen to both of those. Yeah. Movie Podcast Weekly is my other show. And next Friday, there will not be an episode because this is a bi-weekly podcast after all. We'll take a little breather. So no episode next Friday. But in two weeks from today, we have a great episode release for you. Make sure you tune in. You will not want to miss it. It's great. And I'm going to be announcing the big news in that episode. So make sure you are there for episode 48. 
And as you can tell from this episode, we love your comments. So make sure you get involved in this fantastic horror movie podcast community. I feel like we're all friends. So leave a comment in the show notes for this episode or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can send us a tweet. Give us a shout out on Twitter at Horror Movie Cast on Twitter. You can leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. As I said, we are on Facebook now. We're on Google Plus and all kinds of other stuff. So make sure you check that out at the top right corner of HorrorMoviePodcast.com. We got all these chicklets on there for social media. And I'm even doing a SoundCloud page with many reviews now called Five Minutes of Horror. So check that out. You can find all of our episodes on our website, horrormoviepodcast.com, including our back archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and Horror Metropolis. And you can subscribe free in iTunes and get every single show that we release. I want to take the time to thank Frederick Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. It'll be linked in the show notes. And I think that's it. So stick around for the last couple of reviews that we have at the end from Josh and from our friend TJ. And we thank you for listening. We'll catch you in two weeks for episode 48 of Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Hey guys, this is Halloweeny Wolfman Josh here, giving you two last mini reviews before we put this Friday the 13th franchise to bed. This first one was a recommendation, or, or a challenge, rather, or maybe even a punishment uh, from our listener David in the UK, who um, said that because you know the, the shows were a little late posting uh, a, a couple times, we, we needed to be punished by watching Saturday the 14th. So I did watch Saturday the 14th, and I'm bringing you... A mini review of that right now. This is a 1981 spoof comedy, uh, which is one of my least favorite subgenres in the world. Um, I think they can be done well. I don't hate the scary movie movies as much as a lot of people do. I would say this is below the level of like a Zucker film. Um, it's below the level of a Mel Brooks film. And for me, that's saying a lot because those are not my cup of tea. Basically, what you have here is a family inherits a it's a creepy old mansion, and they move in, and there's a Book of the Dead kind of thing in the house that when the husband starts flipping through these pages after reading an incantation, he starts releasing these monsters. Meanwhile, there's a vampire also trying to get into their house to get a hold of this book, and there's a Van Helsing character trying to stop the vampire. So it has a few elements that I enjoy. It's a very, very goofy, very slapstick the actors are terrible in it. I mean, Paula Prentice and Richard Benjamin, both decent actors. Um, they've done you know a lot of great movies. They're both together about a decade earlier in Catch Twenty Two, which I think is a great film. But neither of them are particularly believable in the film. Particularly Richard Benjamin, I just don't think he commits. He just looks like he's smiling through most of it, or embarrassed, or or maybe a little even tipsy. He just I just don't buy his commitment to this role. Um, Jeffrey Tambor is in it, playing the vampire, and he is great as always. He also is goofy, but he's just excellent. Um, his character is called Valdemore, or Waldemar, but I, I couldn't help but wonder if that was a, a influence on Voldemort uh, from the Harry Potter series. I don't know. The names are, are, are pretty similar. 
Anyway, um, you know, there's not much to love here other than it has that kind of classic monster mashup, monster rally thing that I do like in films like The Monster Squad and, of course, all the classics. But, you know, this has kind of closer to that Monster Squad comedic feel to it. Monster Squad is a far superior film. I would say this lands in the range for me somewhere below Young Frankenstein, way below Young Frankenstein, below Haunted Honeymoon, but above Transylvania 6-5000. So if you like those films, you may be able to enjoy this. You know, I think if you like Transylvania 6-5000, this is probably watchable. I think for most people, this will not be watchable. It it was rough for me most of the time. There was one interesting shot in the bathtub that looked like the Nightmare on Elm Street claw coming out of the tub scene almost exactly at first. It turns out to be the creature from the Black Lagoon, and you do have werewolves and things like that in this film. So I just assumed this had ripped off a Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, being that it's called Saturday the 14th and clearly a horror spoof, but actually it comes a couple years before Nightmare on Elm Street. So I now I'm wondering, wow, I wonder if Wes Craven got that classic iconic shot from this terrible horror spoof Saturday the 14th. So that was one thing that kind of stood out. Other than that, I don't know. It's just goofy. So I'm going to give Saturday the 14th a 3.5 and say it's a very, very, very low priority rental for people who like horror comedy spoofs. And lastly, I'm going to be mini-reviewing Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th, which is a multi-disc documentary series about the Friday the 13th movies. Guys, this is really good. It's based on the book by Peter Brackey, which Doc referenced several times throughout our franchise review. I really like the book. The book has a few things this doesn't in terms of, you know, a lot of great behind-the-scenes photographs and things. This has a lot of the stories, though, that come from the book and some really great stuff. And it's, of course, nice to revisit all of these actors and people who are involved with the films and get to see them actually speak about it. If you are interested enough in Friday the 13th that you're going to watch special features, which I know we have listeners that actually don't at all watch special features, but for me, that's one of my main interests. Um, I'll even buy movies I don't particularly like just to watch the making of documentary or listen to the commentary um, because I'm a cinephile movie nut. And I think this is a great companion piece to the Friday the 13th series. This would be the kind of thing like, let's say you only want to own the first two movies, but you're still interested in the other films. This would be cool to just buy this Blu-ray or DVD. And it does come with both, actually. If you buy the Blu-ray, you get the DVD for free with it. Um, Just to have, and you can kind of revisit some of the better parts of the series, behind-the-scenes moments. Um, It's directed by Daniel Ferens, who did the... Uh, He's done a ton of behind-the-scenes documentaries about horror movies, actually. But most notably, as we talk about Friday the 13th, he did the documentary His Name is Jason, 30 Years of Friday the 13th. So if you've seen that, which is a pretty good documentary, this is kind of like the updated ultimate edition of that documentary. It's really, really good if you are interested in this. The production values are pretty good. Corey Feldman kind of guides the whole thing, which is kind of fun, even though he is dressed ridiculously, which is so funny because this came out in 2013, but it looks like it must have been shot in like 2004 because he's wearing all these bedazzled affliction clothes and stuff like that. Honestly, as a documentary, I would be happy giving this like a 7 or an 8. 
Um, it would be weird to rate this higher than the films. So kind of trying to take that into context with my rating. I'm going to give this one a six. I think you should definitely get it, though, if you are um, interested in a really solid companion piece to the Friday the 13th franchise. I've used a couple of clips from this throughout as we've discussed these films. So you've heard some clips from this already. And I hope if you love these movies, you'll check this out. That's it from Halloweeny Wolfman Josh. I'm very happy to be done discussing this franchise, although, of course, there are many movies in it that I do love. But I am very happy to take a break and get back to watching Halloween. Hey there, Jason and the rest of the crew there at Horror Movie Podcast. Uh, this is TJ in Finland again. Uh, you might remember me. I'm not sure. I've called in a few times. But I thought this would be the best way to kind of give you my, uh, I guess, my feelings on the Friday the 13th franchise. I don't think I could just call in and leave a voicemail. This might be a little long. So I'm sending in a MP3, and hopefully Jason can, can play it or most of it or whatever. But uh, I've been listening to the uh, past two podcasts where you've talked about part one, and you covered, I think, just recently parts two, three, and four. And uh, there's been some, uh, I don't want to call it heated per se, but some, some good discussion about the franchise. And you uh, had the Bill Shetty guy on who's a, who's a big fanatic for Friday the 13th. And, uh, you know, that's his favorite uh, franchise for the horror slashers, I think, he said. And then the rest of the guys, they kind of like Halloween. And Jason, I believe you like Friday the 13th a little bit more than Halloween. So uh, I've, I've kind of got uh, some different uh, viewpoints, I think, that maybe some of the other guys may have. And uh, I will start this by saying that Friday the 13th is my favorite uh, franchise as well. I'm not a, a butthurt fanboy or anything when it comes to Jason, like uh, Wolfman and some of the other guys kind of talked about. But, uh, you know, I like Halloween too. I don't have anything against Halloween. But I think there's been points on both sides of this argument I really want to get into, and I've got some my own personal thoughts about the, uh, how I view Jason Voorhees or any of the kind of the slashers that rose to fame in the 80s. So I guess the best way for me to start this is to give my own personal take on not just the Friday the 13th franchise, though it will center mostly on the Jason Voorhees character, but kind of how I view the, the slasher icons of the 80s, such as Michael Myers, even though he started in the 70s. Uh, Voorhees and Kruger uh, are the big ones. But I'm a big heavy metal guy. And when I look at these films going back, I kind of equate Michael Myers... Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, and whoever else that may kind of have come up, even the trick-or-treat guy, even though it's only a one-film thing, but it, it, that film focused on heavy metal a lot. Or even The Gate, even though that doesn't have a central character, but heavy metal was a central theme. So I think these slasher films and horror films from this time period, the heavy metal stuff kind of crosses very easily, and, and they're relatable in this way. The slashers of this time, to me, they represented like what heavy metal bands of the time were. The, the metal bands Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Metallica in the later part of the 80s, uh, Rat, Dawkins, all them, they were bands that were larger than life to the point of where they were mythical in status to the fans. They were legendary. They, it was almost like people viewed them as being untouchable and unstoppable, that they were above normal human capabilities. Even the subject matters of bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, uh, Black Sabbath even, uh, you know, darker in tone, which the horror movies, the slasher icons, dark, dark movies. And, uh, and so like Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, I equate to like what people viewed heavy metal bands like. They're, they're larger than life. They're above and beyond normal human capabilities, yet they're humanoid in form. Freddy Krueger's humanoid in form, even though he's disfigured and he, he's actually one that speaks a lot. But, uh, they're, to me, they're, they're very much like heavy metal bands. Uh, 
they're there. Uh, the the people they're encountering is ability wise in terms of how they can confront the the slasher. Ability wise, the slashers are above them. The musicians and heavy metal bands, you know, it, it, they were almost like godlike beings to the fans. The slashers, in a way, are kind of, I guess, a, uh, a kind of. I don't want to call them a deity. That's a little too much. But you know, on they they kind of have mythological proportions to them that make them kind of above normal mortals. And so, uh, to me, when I look at these movies from the '80s, the slashers, Friday the Thirteenth, I think Voorhees probably encompasses encompasses this idea of mine more than any of them, especially in Friday the Thirteenth. Part six, Jason lives. You know, his stature, his his body language. I mean, he is the action a hero of horror movies and the larger than life character, or like heavy metal band. So I, that's that's kind of how I view the uh, the slashers of the eighties. They're there. They're the mascots. I mean, they're everything that a heavy metal band kind of is. So I want to get into some other aspects of the things you talked about, like. Why do people start cheering for the the slasher instead of the characters and victims of, of the films? Um, I know other critics, Roger Ebert, kind of you know he kind of thought people like to uh, the filmmakers really get a kick out of thinking they can stab people or whatever. I don't think that's really the case. But it kind of goes back to what I just said about the heavy metal bands. People rever things that might be a little bit greater than them, uh, whether it's bad or good. And uh, to me. Uh, these slashers, Myers, Jason Voorhees, all these, uh, to me, they represent the great equalizer. Uh, the the characters and the victims in these films, outside of the realm of the horror genre that they that they get into, Count Crystal Lake, Haddonfield, wherever it may be, Elm Street. Before they encounter those problems, they have a class system. You have either your popular kid, the jocks. Uh, that are popular, they have well connected, you know, well, they're well connected in school, society, the rich and poor, or whatever. And then you have kids that are not, or people that are not. Uh, and so there's basically a class system. There's be uh, better than thou's and uh, worse than thou's, and, and so on. But once they get into the situation of encountering a slasher, there's no class system anymore. The slasher, Jason Voorhees, is the great equalizer. Everybody is equal. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. And I know there's the virgin aspect or whatever at the end. But uh, overall, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, rich or poor, popular or not, he he will come after you and he will kill you. It, does, there's, it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't bribe him. It doesn't matter how much money you don't have. He's not going to feel sorry for you. It doesn't matter if you're popular at school. That's not going to uh, solve your problems. And it doesn't matter if you're a disaffected youth. He don't care. He's not going to take pity on you. You're all equal. And I think as a, uh, as a movie viewer, watching this, whether it's subconscious or not, you see the persona of this slasher come out, and there's a part of you that realizes, hey, he's taking care of a guy that I can relate to, this victim that's a jock, per se, to give an easy example, that picks on me at school and... Uh, he's not picking on Jason. Jason is the one picking on everybody. So I think there's a part of why people cheer for that. Even I'm not saying people are wanting to go out and kill their bullies or anything like that. But you know, it kind of there's a sense of a karma 
coming back to those people that have treated people so bad in the terms of viewing the, the jock versus the, the low life or whatever. And, uh, and also uh, the, the poor person or the geek or whatever, there's no, there's no sense of you're getting entitlement because someone's feeling sorry for you either. He's coming after you too. So it's not like one person is better than the other. So I think there's a sense of equality there that uh, the slashers give. Um, also, um, I feel like with Jason especially, um, he represents a certain kind of forced Darwinism. Uh, like uh, I've heard him mention before that he's like a force of nature and stuff, but uh, to me, he's like, uh, when confronted with a figure like Jason, uh, the victims either adapt and evolve and survive or they die. And if you notice, especially in parts one, two, three, four, I won't count five because of some obvious reasons, uh, but it could be a, thrown in there too maybe, but uh, in six and maybe even seven a little bit, if you notice the survivors, and part two is a great example of this, uh, the woman, the way she defeated Jason was not like she wasn't like the other victims and stuff she found the head of his mother in the cabin out in the woods she dressed up like him and, and done a psychological warfare kind of on him you know tricked him but she adapted unlike some of the other victims and, you know some of the other victims get blindsided they don't know what's going on and they get killed so i understand that too but once you know something's after you in, in these movies everybody else gets killed except for the ones that adapt and and rise above what they previously previously were part two she acted like uh uh, his mom, um, part four, uh, Tom, uh, Tommy Jarvis, he used his makeup effects uh, ideas and, and shaved his head and tried to look like Jason as a kid and, until he chopped him up in a million pieces. But they all did something to rise above the current situation they were in, therefore forcing them to evolve to the next level to, sur to survive this encounter. So that's kind of, I always kind of looked at Jason as being something that was a... Uh, Darwinism evolution in effect, but instead of taking place over millions of years, it took place over the course of a night where you you either step up to the plate and take a swing or you get struck out with a machete okay so um that's that's my take on 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 the Voorhees uh character and why people cheer for him and and stuff like that now I want to get to uh there was uh this this section here where Bill Shetty kind of he didn't uh, give Halloween any kind of credit at all for Friday the 13th. Uh, but he said Friday the 13th really set the steamroller in mo motion for all the slasher films that came into the 80s. I will agree with that point. Um, I think if it had not been for Friday the 13th and the subsequent sequels, I mean, th I think that's really what set the milestone for slashers of the 80s. Now, however, I do disagree with him in the sense that he, he says Halloween didn't really uh, have anything to do with Friday the 13th. I, I think that's untrue. I think obviously Friday the 13th was made because of the success of Halloween. I, I, I don't think that can be denied. However, I think the tropes that Friday the 13th set forth blatantly, however intentional or unintentional, I mean, I think that really set the heyday for the 80s films. I, I, I look at it like this. Uh, I mentioned the heavy metal bands and, and, and the slashers earlier. I look at Halloween as being like the band Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath is credited as being the, uh, the band that really started the genre of heavy metal. 
they set the, the groundwork, the, the crunchy riffs, the, the dark subject matter, and so on. And they, they kind of got it going. And then there was a few bands that came after that. And then I, I kind of considered Friday the 13th like Iron Maiden, even though I don't think Iron Maiden rips off Black Sabbath to the nth degree or anything. But I think Iron Maiden came along and uh, they exploded in the 1980s, in, in the early 80s. And that set the groundwork for a lot, a lot, a lot of metal bands that came after them. I mean, they range in influences from Metallica to nearly every kind of European band that came out in the 80s that were uh, that weren't like poppy or glammy and so what Halloween Black Sabbath set in motion I believe Friday the 13th and Iron Maiden ripped the envelope apart and uh, it, it burst forth all this stuff that you saw come out in the 80s uh, I think uh, that's my best analogy I can I can come up with there and uh, so obviously Friday the 13th owes something to Halloween to a point I mean I can't see how you cannot see that and I'm a big Friday the 13th fan. I like it better than Halloween as far as the overall franchise. But I'm not blind to the influence of Halloween. I mean, it's impossible. So now I want to get to the Jason Supernatural thing. I know you guys got into a big, big uh, thing about did Jason drown? Is he supernatural? What? Is he a zombie? And all this stuff. And now I'm going to say this. Uh, I do agree. I can't remember who said it. It might have been uh, Wolfman. I can't remember. But obviously the film writers, when they was making the movies during the time period, you know, they weren't thinking from one film to the next. Continuity is kind of skewed and all this stuff. I get it. Uh, now I think uh, we can look back, and I, and I think it's important to note that with these movies, you build a mythos. You build a lore. As, uh, as flawed as it may be in certain points because they weren't worried about that at the time period. But I think as fans and future screenwriters, you can look back on this and build a mythos and a lore. Uh, the, uh, I kind of look at the movies as a modern day, or semi-modern day, folk legends and film format of characters like Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. They build a, a legend, a myth, and future generations can add to this. So you can al always look back and, and take parts and build a story up from the parts that are in these movies. So, uh, getting, I guess the first point of contention is, okay, did Jason drown? Was that, I mean, was he a kid? And then five years later, he's in a, he's in a, I know that was a, a big point of contention or whatever. I think, and, and this is my own mythology, okay, or, or however you want to do it, I think something happened that, okay, the counselors, did something to where he drowned. Maybe the mom got the body back, and maybe he kind of drowned. Maybe he didn't. Maybe something kind of brought him back, but he wasn't right anymore. Obviously, when he popped out of the lake in that dream sequence, he looked deformed or something. So, but again, it was a dream sequence, and it was supposed to be a dream sequence. There wasn't, from a realistic point of view of outside of the movie and the business aspect of it, they didn't expect a sequel, so they didn't really think about it. But in my interpretation, I think maybe there was something that he either drowned. For a certain amount of time, he kind of came back. Maybe he's brain dead for a while or something. I don't know. But um, so, but he was still able to grow, kind of like a normal human. But he, you know, in parts two and three, he's kind of like a, a redneck hillbilly from the cabin in the woods or something, almost. You know, or a, like a mongoloid or something. You know, he's really like deformed and stuff like that. So I think I'm not sure I would call this point in time for him supernatural, or maybe they're like. John Carpenter did with uh, Michael Myers. You know, he did try to add a, just 
a small bit of supernaturalism to the character. And I'm not sure that's what the the writers for Friday the 13th were doing, but maybe there was a little bit of a supernatural essence in him coming back in these early films. And I think, uh, I know this film is not the uh, favorite of a lot of fans, but I think uh, when they made Jason Goes to Hell, they tried to somehow address this. And I know it's a body shifting worm or, or, or whatever. Uh, me personally, I like with what they try to do with Jason Goes to Hell. Um, and I actually thought as a movie, it wasn't too bad. I know a lot of people wanted to see Jason in a hockey mask and stuff. And I understand that. I do. Uh, but um, the thing about Jason Goes to Hell that I feel kind of ties some of this in and kind of makes it a little Lovecraftian is that, A, we, we don't even... Well, we see, first of all, I think the Necronomicon in the Voorhees house. So there could be something where his mother grabbed the kid in the previous movie when he drowned and kept his body and somehow got a hold of this book and and got him come back to life but there was something not right with him afterwards also the, the, to note I've never heard anybody else ever mention this I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this in Jason Goes to Hell there was a scene there at the last part of the movie where some some of the characters fell through the floor of the Voorhees house down into the basement and there's these crates down there and it's quick but if you notice some of those crates are marked Arctic Expedition so uh, my feeling is Jason drowned or something bad enough happened to him uh, during that sequence in the 1950s when that happened to him, the the, mo the mom and I guess maybe the father, uh, they looked into ways to bring back their boy. They found the Necronomicon, they found uh, maybe something, uh, researched some things maybe trapped in the ice in, in the Arctic, and they brought it back. And they got something to bring Jason back somehow. Uh, because to me, those uh, well, obviously the Necronomicon sitting in the house is one big clue, and then uh, just the little crate in the basement marked Arctic Expedition. I think that's, I think it's it's small stuff like that that can ignite imaginations to elevate movies if if the writers are willing to push it that far. And you know, and with Friday the Thirteenth, a lot of horror movies, writers are going for the quick thrill sometimes. I, I think horror movies get a bad rap and sometimes they, they deserve a little bit more attention in the writing process and I, and I think in, in Jason Goes to Hell they could have explored that a little bit and maybe even some of the, of the future film franchises but uh, anyway that's kind of my take on, on the Friday the 13th series um, I like the, the Voorhees character and uh, I think there's a lot of room there to really find out I mean why Jason is what he is and from what I hear when they're going to make this new movie that's supposed to be kind of what they look into is why is he able to sustain this amount of damage that he has sustained and able to do what he does, which Jason goes to hell kind of explain that, but I don't, I never hear anybody ever talk about that. But anyway, guys, uh, hope this wasn't too long. I hope you can use the, uh, the voicemail here, but, um, regardless, I enjoyed the podcast and, uh, keep it up and, uh, hope to, uh, I don't know, hear some more cool stuff from you. Bye.